You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. What's happening? It's an attack. Pathetic earthlings. Who can save you now? Flash, I'll kill you. Let's all team up and fight him. Prepare for torture. I want him. Stop at nothing. Flash Gordon is still alive. Gordon's alive? Yes! Must be my lucky day. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Brickelmeyer. Hello. Thank you for having me again. And joining us in the booth for the first time is Mr. Scott Weinberg. Clytus, I'm bored. We are wrapping up 2021 with a look at a film from 1980, Flash Gordon. Directed by Mike Hodges, the film stars Sam J. Jones as the titular fair-haired hero who is transported to the planet Mongo, along with travel agent Dale Arden and scientist Hans Zarkov. There they encounter Ming the Merciless, who wants to destroy the Earth just for kicks, you know. Of course, we will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen it, go watch Flash Gordon and come on back. We will still be here. So, Chris, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think, sir? I actually saw it in the theater. We had family visiting, and it was one of those, let's let's do something. And I liked it, but then again, I was eight, so I was meant to like it. I know the older cousins uh, were not as thrilled with it pretty sure my father hated it but i liked it i really like not to get too ahead of it uh, of us it was different with queen doing the soundtrack rather than what i had been used to which was uh you know symphony orchestras doing the soundtrack and scott how about yourself 
like Chris, I saw this as a kid. I was blown away by it. I loved it. And then I kind of forgot about it for most of my adolescence and young adulthood. And then um, I rediscovered it as an adult and just was struck by how how much fun it is, and how, how colorful and energetic and fast paced and fun. Just it's it's campy on purpose. But it's also just the fun that it's meant to be. It's, this is the kind of, this is what they meant to make. I really believe that. I don't know if I saw this one theatrically or not. I know I saw it a lot when I was growing up. Obviously, I heard the Queen song a ton, which also helps make you think that you've seen the movie maybe more than you have. What with the dialogue drops in there? What I remember the most is that my folks bought me the crazy magazine the uh marvel imprint i think that was uh not cracked not mad but crazy and it had a drawing of max von Sydow on the front as ming the merciless with shaving cream part of his head and a big band-aid and he's saying uh foolish earthlings who will shave you now and then flash gordon and dale are there and flash has a major uh razor blade uh <laughs> like a safety razor in his hand uh, so reading that without having seen the movie didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but that was my biggest, strongest memory of Flash Gordon for the longest time until starting to see it either on VHS or on cable quite a few times. And I absolutely loved it. It starts off one way and then it takes a pretty good turn right around like, I think it's like about 26 minutes in with that football game. And you're just like, what the hell did I walk into? But I really enjoyed the tone of it. I love the look of it. Uh, I was thinking this week that it reminds me a lot of Wizard of Oz. I mean, more than just having like the flying monkeys or having the Hawkmen in this, the whole idea of Flash and Dale and Zarkov taking that trip to Mongo. And once you get there, the color just explodes off the screen. I mean, this is a gorgeous looking film it looks terrific the costumes are amazing the sets are fantastic and yeah chris you mentioned the music it's terrific and then you have these very sincere performances from all of the actors especially sam jones as flash gordon just such the all-american boy i remember the first feeling of not not having um the words to identify it but with the with the football in ming's court it was the first time I remember watching a movie and basically saying, but not these words, but the same, the same feeling of, yeah, I guess we're doing this now. And I was all in for it. I love how it goes from the absurdity of the football sequence almost instantly to a very somber execution sequence. <laughs> Whiplash in this movie is crazy. I think it also helped. Uh, I mean, I was eight when this movie came out. Like I said, I probably saw it a few years after that. Seeing this, uh, you know, a few years later, I mean, the sexual stuff in this movie is laid on really thick. Yeah, history indicates that Lucas wanted to make Flash Gordon, couldn't get the rights, and then went off and made a little something called, what was it called? Stars? Star Wars? Star Wars. Wars. Star Wars. from space. Right. right. From Japan. He went to Japan. Yeah. yeah, he made Star Wars. And, you know, and I think that it allowed Dano De Laurentiis, who ended up getting the rights to Flash Gordon, to say, all right, we're going to copy what's good in Star Wars and we're going to make it a more a more colorful and we're going to make it sexual because there's not a lot of sexiness in Star Wars. And it, it seems like it both evokes the 30s serial um, and it and 
modern or modern for 1980 at the same time. And I think it's that marriage that appeals so strongly to a lot of people. Well, it's really strange how similar Flash Gordon is to The Empire Strikes Back. You know, I was thinking the other day, it's like, okay, well, you got the the swamp planet. Basically, Flash goes to Dagobah, and then Dale and Zarkov, and then eventually Flash go to Bespin. It's the city in the clouds. And there's even the part where he's escaping from the Hawkman city and goes into this tube and slides down this tube. And I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, I forgot all about this. And then, of course, you've got like the masked villain. I mean, these are the the archetypes that you're talking about, Scott, when it comes to like the similarities between Star Wars and Flash Gordon. But just those weird beats of how Empire and Flash were very similar in some places. Like, of course, yeah, you're going to have your evil emperor. You're going to have your henchman with the the mask and everything like Clytus. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool, even though Clytus was actually a creation of Michael Allen. And was a holdover from his script that made it into the Lorenzo Simple script. Pretty much the same character through both and really kind of a Darth Vader character. So I, I'm not really surprised that he got added into the mix. Clytus was not from the original comic strip? No. Yeah, I always, I always loved him. It's Peter oh. Wingard, the voice of Clytus. Uh, the performance is absolutely wonderful. Obviously, you don't see his face, but he just oozes malice and, and nasty when he speaks. His voice is just wonderful. I love Clytus. An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. He's got an arrogance that can be backed up with like ability and power in that world. It's very interesting. I also love how they sprinkle little backstories in between all these characters. It's clear that Clytus and General Kala probably have a thing going on. And then there's uh, Princess Aura, who, of course, rescues Flash from death. How she's seemingly having an affair with Baron, but also is kind of leading on the Ming's court surgeon. I don't know. I don't know. Um, there's, there's a lot going on in this. It's pretty efficient, isn't it? There's a lot going on. Well, and it keeps that pacing of the serials like you're talking about. I mean, how many times does Flash Gordon die in this movie? You know, he, there's at least two or three times where Dale thinks that he's dead and really could end the movie at certain points and be like, will Flash escape? And that was kind of the commercials that they were running at the same time was, will he be able to escape this? There's He's executed with gas. Then um, Monster on the on the Swamp Planet that almost swallows him. That, that, that would be the end of a serial episode. And, oh, and my favorite is, imagine you're watching a serial in 1938, and all of a sudden, Flash is hanging off this ledge between, you know, if he lets go, he falls to his death. And then the serial ends, and you come back next week, and the next episode is, oh, there happens to be an escape tube right next to him with a vehicle in it. We didn't show that to you last time, but there it is, right there. Just an escape hatch. Just, get, get your, just slide on in. This isn't what happened last week. Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us. This isn't fair. He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car. Not to mention, too, uh, everybody on Earth would think he was dead with the crashed plane. There's so much about that beginning that I love. What about Dr. Zarkov's assistant? Oh, yeah. Well, as genre fans will know, uh, of course, the assistant Bunsen is played by the great William Hootkins, who's been in literally everything good. Look him up, Star Wars, Raiders, you name it. And I like that it's a pulpy kind of 
death for him, but he literally gets run over by a plane, and none of our three heroes ever acknowledges it. Who was that guy we ran over, or I'm so sorry about your friend? Nothing. Nothing! But I love that the, oh god, I can't remember the character's name, but the guy who uh, tries to stab Ming right towards the beginning, that's Katanga from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. Yeah, that's Prince Thun. Thank you. Who wants, yes, Prince Thun once has a good plan, but, uh, you know, of course, Ming has the technology to thwart such a, a an obvious assassination attempt. And yeah, he's a good actor, that guy. He's a very familiar face. It's just so much fun. There's so, I could talk about this movie for hours. There's so much in it that I love. I love that it is a little bit dark. And, but it's mostly playful. I love that it does have like a sexual edge to it, but it's mostly family friendly. The jumping around from location to location, the swamp planet, and we get a look at the ice planet. It's got so much of what I love about space adventure. It's so much fun. I didn't know until last night that Warren Oates almost played the Han Zarkov role, which seems like it would have been a major mistake because Topol is just chewing up the scenery as Han Zarkov. And I love him. I love his accent. Very over the top and, and bombastic as a supporting uh, character, but he occasionally pulls it back and just underplays it to m- mostly with Dale. And you're right. He's a great character he's he's one you start to you don't like him at first because he's you know unhinged and as the film goes on he's part of the team and he's totally on board and now you trust him and now he's almost like an older brother han solo you know he's like that kind of sidekick and then um he has so many tropes that i love picking up allies along the way that's one of my favorite tropes another great trope is the villain who sees the error of his ways and comes to fight with the villain with the heroes and that's a Prince Baron is played by Timothy Dalton. And that, that is a great hook. When he really dives in with both feet and becomes heroic, you're like, yeah, because that's the psychology of uh, these heroes have won them over. He's not just, you know, saving the day. He's convinced them that he can help. And uh, they're like more than happy to join the uh, insurrection. Yeah, it's actually it's quite a, a struggle for him to convince them in both parts of the film. That's not something... You know, as a uh, as an eight year old, I was like used to. It was like, hey, we're gonna go fight the bad guy. Would be like, yeah, sure, let's go. What is it that shows Mongo the error of their ways? He could kill Baron, but he doesn't, and that's what makes everyone realize when she says, "Oh, Flash." That shows them what humanity is, and you know, it's a simple message, it's a simple note, but it, you know, it movies mostly for kids. So I, I just think it's, I think it's lovely. I think it's wonderfully written. Talking about Zarkov some more, I mean, you compared him a little bit to Han Solo. I would say there's almost a little C-3PO there, too, with the way that he's like, I'm calculating. What? Time remaining before the moon crashes on Earth. I'd say, very roughly, 14 hours, 9 minutes, and 20 seconds. If the moon is that close to the Earth at that point... We're already screwed. Oh, yeah. We are so fucked. It, we are Thunder the Barbarian territory right now. Right. I mean, our oceans would become just a wave of tsunamis. And, I mean, it would, the, the, the planet would be completely screwed if we got that close. But, you know, in the pulpy comic book world, it doesn't matter. It's the Earth. The, if the moon doesn't crash into the Earth, we win. There was a Super Friends where Superman pushed the moon out of the way. And I was like, oh, my God, that would just ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my think of the crops yeah <laughs> there goes all of kansas superman way to go i never knew until re-watching it many times over this last week listening to all the commentaries and even the fan commentary that's out there that has uh, melody anderson and sam jones on it 
I never realized that it's Robbie Coltrane as the guy who's working at the airport at the beginning. I don't think the guy's got one line. I mean, this was like, it's funny because we covered Britannia Hospital a few months ago, and it's kind of the same thing. He's just there as like a striking worker. He might have a line, but back in 1980, nope. What about in Krull? Does he have the same amount of lines as in Krull? By Krull, I think he he managed to get a couple lines. I didn't know who this man was as a kid, but uh, one of the allies he ends up picking up on the Swamp Planet is uh, Richard O'Brien, the composer slash co-star of Rocky Horror. And he gets to play a little music in there with that crazy panpipe thing that he's got. He's sufficiently odd, which really worked. <laughs> and malevolent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Baron's got him, and I think his name is Biko, but then Voltan has his guy, the guy Biro, even though he's, he's kind of got two guys. He's got the guy who actually gets a few more lines, and then Biro is the guy with the nose that's completely out of joint. Somebody said that he was a rugby player, but then I heard later that he was a stuntman and that Brian Blessed helped him get into the union by giving him that incredible line of, they wing me. I love that each one of these very broad archetypes, like you said, they all have their, like, their assistance. And you notice this stuff when you've seen the film six, seven, eight times. I mean, even Princess Aura has an assistant called Fellini. Oh, yeah. Deep Roy, man. It's so good. He looks so young in this. God, that, that throne room is just – imagine walking into that set and looking up and just looking – it's beautiful. Those costumes, the colors of those costumes, and all those little guys, the little guys with the football helmets and the weird broad shoulders and the little uh, swords. I mean, those, like, I'm surprised I didn't ask Mike Edmonds about that a few months ago, because it's like all of the guys that were time bandits, basically, like at least three or four of the time bandits are those folks. And then you got Deep Roy there as well. And I'm just like, man, this was like a field day for little people. Yeah, and you could really sense that the production designers and the costume designers really trying to, as you show this courtroom, you're seeing six or seven different distinct factions. Just and then you, they're just kind of giving us that visually. When you know what I mean, like we see Prince Voltan and his little girl and all the the guys with the big wings, and we see Prince Thun, and the, we get the idea that they're all coming to pay homage to Ming and gift him and. Uh, it, we're, we're thrown into the world of Mongo, and they do a really good job of setting up what we what we need to know. The introduction of the, of the guard that they have when they first get out of the rocket, and he goes to shake his hand, and he has the gun with the metal gauntlet in it. Absolutely fascinating. I'm like, I've never seen anything like that in my life before. And then the skull faces on the guards and the gas mask ones, they were all... They're all based on imagery that could be upsetting or disturbing, depending on context. But they're just, they're made up to look like ornate stage plays and, and crystal collections. And Those lizard face guys are creepy. I also love just the simple screenwriting trick of the script could have been completely done. I could just see Lorenzo Semple sitting around going, I need one more little touch. So at the end of act one, he puts in this like android robot that can zap anyone. There's no way you can defeat this thing. If it sees you and it wants to kill you, you're dead. So so he sets it up once, it vanishes, we forget about it, and then it it's there at the very end to give us this rousing moment of he's won over everybody. The entire kingdom loves Flash Gordon. Yeah, even the robot. Chris, you mentioned the gun that fires the hands. 
And I love the use of the hands that are holding down Princess Aura when she's getting tortured. I never noticed that before. Just those four hands that are holding her down. It adds this weird personal touch to it because because they are hands instead of just clamps. It's just that much further outside of what you expect to be normal. The more, you know, if you just add little details, not giant florid details, but if you, even in a movie as broad and colorful and wacky as this, just little details add up to a lot. I mean, just imagine how much work went into that sequence that shows them trying to erase Dr. Zarkov's memory. Just the footage in that sequence alone probably took a month to shoot. I disavowed the collative learning guy when he went off the deep end and was trying to disprove the um, Michael Jackson documentary that was out a few years ago and was just like, no, no, this is all faked footage, da, 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 da. But he had a video I was looking for because he went through all of that uh, memory removal footage and slowed it down to frame by frame. So showing the bird imagery, there's a ton of bird imagery. You can see that even without it being slowed down, but all of the, the owls in one part, and then there are hawks in another part, especially in the Hitler part. So there's just, it's really interesting that there's all of this bird imagery that goes through that. And it really doesn't necessarily, other than the hawkman, I suppose, it doesn't come back in any other way. Or it's meant to indicate that Dr. Zarkov is destined to fly away. <laughs> I never noticed that at all, but that's fascinating that somebody analyzed that footage. That's so cool. Does it move from single images of birds up to a flock of birds? It might. Because that would be like him accepting other people's help, joining a group or, or something. Well, and don't forget, it's going backwards, too. Right. Welcome to Symbolism 101. Yeah, I, love, on- <laughs> I love making up stuff. To, to, no, like, that's the beauty of it, man. We you had can. no intention for any of this, but I'm going to add my own meaning to it. There's, there's, you know, uh, visual symbolism and subtext that was meant to be there. And if you get it, great. And if you don't see it, great. And then there's what we bring to a film ourselves, And both are completely legitimate. Both. You don't have art without the, you need, you know, art is a two-way street. You need the artist and the observer, right? The thing I really like about this movie is that it, it wasn't one of these where it's like, you know, originally Fellini was talking about doing it and then he's like, no. So then they get Rogue and they, and Rogue's working on it with Michael Allen and then eventually that stops. Nicholas Rogue doesn't strike me as the right kind of director for this only because obviously a brilliant filmmaker, but fun? It was a lot less fun when Rogue was on it. I mean, I, I read the Allen script and it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting. There's a lot more nudity. It was going to be a rated R film. Like when Flash. So more like, Bar- more like Barbarella then. Pretty much. But like when Flash was fighting off those guys who eventually start to look like football players and we get that, all of those guards are naked and it's just like wave after wave of naked men that he's fighting off. It's, I mean, it was more like a Kenneth Anger film at that point. There were, Interesting things that stayed in the script, even when Semple, I mean, he pretty much did a page one rewrite, but you can see some of the beats, of course, you know, the whole idea of getting the allies lined up. And there's a whole thing that takes place. One of the characters from the original comic strip was this lion man. And you can see a lion man like in a cage in the back when uh, Flash is there with that big spiky helmet. I love that visual. And the last, I'd say, third of the film, 
Zarkov is separated from Dale and Flash, and it's him and this lion man, and they eventually get chained together, and they have to go down into pretty much the center of Mongo, where there's the I'll just say like nuclear core of the planet and they're shoveling coal into this core of the planet. And whenever they turn around the, as soon as they shovel the coal in the core will expand and get hotter. And so they're basically like dooming themselves by shoveling stuff in there and they're just getting more and more burned. And the lion man hates fire. It's kind of like, again, back to like the wizard of Oz kind of thing. He's almost like the scarecrow in that way and the lion man put together. Yeah. It's just very, very odd how that went. And then there was one thing though, that I kind of wish that they had stuck with. And I think the theme is there a little bit, which is this idea of technology and what the technology is like on Mongo And this idea of, you know, we're talking about the hands and all this and, you know, Ming's ring and these things where they have this different technology than we do here on Earth. And there's one moment where Ming is kind of flexing a little bit and like, look at all these cool things that we have here on Mongo. And you get the impression that it's like, you shouldn't have this technology. This is ill-begotten gains because he pretty much has stolen it from different parts of the galaxy, all these places that he's conquered before. Even though he's Ming the Merciless, the impression I get is like, you are an ape playing with a machine gun. You know, this is going to explode in your face. You shouldn't have these things. That attitude, I think, actually does carry through into the Hodges version because when I was listening to him talk about the film, he kept comparing flash to like American foreign policy and talking about foreign policy in 1979, 1980 and the warlords that were in like Iran and Iraq, you know, this was like right after the hostage crisis or during the hostage crisis. So it was interesting that that ugly American thing still carries through. And of course, being made by a British person, he's very critical of the U S. So that was kind of neat that that still managed to carry through. I never, I never thought about that, but yeah, totally. I do love that it is a very simplistic view of, of uh, interventionist politics, which is like, hey, don't you guys realize you could just team up? Uh, okay, we never thought of that. Thank you to the brave warriors of the Mujahideen. It is interesting that, that Ming would have beat them so far down and broken them so much that they wouldn't even think of that. I mean, if we're going to go for an in-world explanation, I like the uh, we just didn't think of it idea. That's great. Or just the idea, I mean, like, think of all the things that are, you know, plaguing the world now. And a lot of countries cannot address them because they don't get along. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's not, you know, it's not a deep advanced poli sci, but it's, it's got some brains to it. I come to listen to movie reviews and not politics. Don't bother with this podcast. There's that weird moment where Ming threatens Voltan's daughter. And it's like, oh, do you want your... And she's basically a little girl. It's like, do you want your little girl to be part of my harem? And it's like, holy shit, dude. That's pretty twisted. Oh, he's a villain, man. And uh, I do appreciate that. I don't even know if it was how intentional it was. But as most people will know, Ming the Merciless was written in the 30s as, you know, kind of uh, in the stead of the Yellow Peril. For lack of a better, that's a historical term. That's not a term that I use. He's got Sax Romer Fu Manchu written all over him. Uh, But it seems that obviously Von Sydow does not play him as a Asian stereotype. And I didn't, it wasn't until I got older and I went, oh yeah, Ming, obviously. (laughs) 
Yeah, that is definitely a theme that's much more in the original. Imagine if he was Mickey Rooneying all over this ah. movie. Oh, Miyoko, how you think of this? What do you think of item for newspaper? We would say, God, Flash Gordon is so much fun, but what was Von Sydow doing? But we don't really say that. <laughs> Sci-Fi did a short-lived, just mediocre series. Ming was basically uh, Jeff Winger, just like from Community, just white guy, leather jacket, kind of put together, but nowhere at all even questionably racist. I was at first a little disappointed, and then I thought about it for a half a second, and I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense, yeah. That's probably a good idea. Yeah, it's kind of a shame that the one kingdom that is populated by uh, black people is just like, you know, after Ming murders their prince, it's just like, okay, that's the last black people we'll see in this movie. Bye. Kind of wish that they maybe had come back. They have battle droid syndrome. One of them dies, they all die. That's what happened to the people of Ardentia. Man, I memorized that Queen album. Well, yeah, and I think on the Queen album, it's still his real voice, but he's overdubbed in the movie, right? We, the people of Ardensia, we have suffered since you blasted our kingdom. I can offer you nothing this year except my loyalty. Your Majesty, we, the people of Ardentia, we have suffered since you blasted our kingdom. I can offer you nothing this year except my loyalty. I guess that some of Sam Jones, or maybe even most of Sam Jones, is his voice, but I've also heard that it's entirely replaced, because I don't hear the difference between his voice in different parts. There's maybe only one – actually, there's one part where it sounds like original audio from Brian Blessed, but otherwise it feels like that's all – ADR stuff, um, but especially with, with Sam Jones, it just feels like all of that stuff was replaced. And even watching his lips, sometimes it doesn't seem to match up to me, but I, I could just be making stuff up. The majority of the performance is not him. I could be wrong too, but yeah, that's always something that's kind of been, I mean, we all know that he was a large section of Sam Jones was dubbed for this movie, but for years it was a, who did it? And then for now it's, well, how much of it? And, you know, I don't hear much of a major difference in certain sequences, so I'm thinking that the guy in ADR did most of it. But uh, Life After Flash is a documentary that sheds a little bit of light on what happened there. I'm still not exactly sure. They they don't go into detail about what it is that Sam Jones did to anger Dano De Laurentiis so, so adamantly, but he did. And there was bad blood, and he was not invited back to do the ADR. And then, of course, when the movie failed to make a whole ton of money, they were the whole situation was moot because they were never going to do sequels now. Yeah. We'll definitely talk a little bit more about the uh, life after flash after the break, but real quick, talk about voices. I mean, you mentioned Peter Wingard. I love that. We never see his face. It's almost like a judge dread type performance where we never see him, even though apparently he was like begging towards the end to take his mask off. (laughs) Well, there is a whole controversy about that gentleman because he was, in an era when it was not really widely accepted that he was outed. Um, and apparently there was a situation where he had trouble finding work. And this was a, a way that Mike Hodges or the casting director could get this man some work. And uh, I think he was uh, – the British film industry kind of screwed Peter Wingard over. I don't really pick up on the sexual politics of Clytus other than that incredibly interesting thing when he – 
uses that handkerchief to kind of signal that Flash Gordon should die from the gas. And then he picks up the handkerchief and starts sniffing it. And apparently that was Princess Aura's handkerchief. And he was just like, that's kind of when he, the, the plan was hatching that he's going to get to be emperor by betting Princess Aura. I'm always curious how much, you know, you mentioned how she's sleeping with Baron. She's sleeping with the doctor. No, no. She's just flirting with the doctor. We don't know. They're definitely, she's leading him on perhaps. We don't know if she's sleeping with him. I thought maybe that's what had happened the previous weekend. Yeah. I love how they have weekends uh, in manga. That's a good point. That's a good point. And even that doctor looks familiar. (laughs) He's got a great face, but I've always wondered how much. Those two, Clytus and Aura, had going on beforehand, or if like this is kind of a new plan. For no, them. this is that old old trope of the the king's right hand man is in love with his daughter, uh, the king's daughter. That's that old trope of he desperately wants her because she's gorgeous, he's hideous, and he wants to be in the in the family bloodline. But I think he just lusts after Aura. I don't think they've ever done anything. I think that she's with she's in love with Baron and leads on or. Uh, you know, <laughs> uses her feminine wiles in however she chooses to. But if you watch it again, you'll see there is a little bit of unspoken tension between Clytus and Kala. Kala is amazing. She she always reminded me a lot of Carolyn Jones from um, the Adams family. I didn't realize that she's the lady from Swept Away, which we'll be talking about in a few months here. So I'm excited to see more of her and something else because I'm. I pretty much only know her as General Gala. She is Mariangela Mulatto, one of the most beautiful names I've ever heard. As opposed to Ornella Muti, who is one of the most beautiful women ever, period. Gen X, I mean, you, Gen X nerds, we have several standby early crushes. You know, Wilma Deering from Buck Rogers is one. Um, and of course, Princess Aura from Flash Gordon. She is stunning. And it's not just that she's beautiful, it's that she's like, she's a bad girl. <laughs> she's dangerous, you know? She's There's something about her that's just uh, interesting, in addition to her being drop-dead gorgeous. Well, and she's got that incredible accent, too, and the way that she reads some of those lines. I mean... No! Not the ballworms! Damn you, father! She's going... She's really playing to the cheap seats there. She is really... Jumps into this character with both feet. And you can see it with the other characters. You're like, all right, eventually they're going to... You know, the Hawkman and the and the Arbor guy, they're all going to team up. But you see from early on that she hates her father. So you're just waiting for that shoe to drop and for her to join the, join the uh, uprising. And it's great. It's great. That scene of her and Dale Arden when... She's like, oh, here, put this poison in my father's drink. He always drinks a, a potion before he makes love, basically. And Dale's like, no, no, I, I gave him my word. You know, and Keeping our word is one of the things that make us better than you. It's such a great line because it's said in, in, in earnest. She doesn't say it like you would say it nowadays. That's what makes us better than you. She does. She says it completely sincere. And it's funny. Although, although you know, it, it's all great to, like, be holier than now, Dale, but... Poison the guy. Millions of people. I mean, he's, he's he's making millions of people suffer. You can you can get a little bit low when you're dealing with stakes this high. <laughs> a lot of people just wrote this off as campy and stuff. And then as I was watching it again, I was just like, oh, there's a lot of very interesting things here. Like the whole idea of you know the you mentioned the plane that runs over Munson at the beginning, and then 
the way that War Rocket Ajax impales Ming at the end. It's like, oh, that's kind of a nice echo of one thing to another. Or even Zarkov, pretty much near the beginning when uh, they're on Mongo. It's a rational transaction. One life for billions. And then Flash does the exact same thing right towards the end when he's about to crash War Rocket Ajax into the palace. I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice that there is this thought that's put behind it. It's not just a campy, exciting, fun time. Yeah, and that's also like vindication for Zarkov too, isn't it? Which is nice because, uh, you know, the the second tier characters don't really ever get much. Prince Baron does get to kick over that tripod. I love that. <laughs> it's so funny. He picks up this big gun that's mounted on a tripod, and then he looks around and he looks down at the tripod, and then chooses to kick it over for no reason. <laughs> he's just he's just irritated. <laughs> that was my favorite weapon in the whole movie. I love the little the little blue discs that it shot out with the orange dot in the middle it was so weird but that was that was that's the great thing about all of yeah it. i would have like as like chris said it would have been nice if the secondary characters had had more moments to like you know a, a, a scene where baron is chasing down kala and her acolytes or a scene where voltan is come and go if you made the movie today you'd give the the secondary characters more to do but i do just love that there are so many of them there's not a lot of oxygen left after you've got brian blessed in there and God bless him. He is fucking amazing. Just to, to steal the slang of the, of the day, everybody in this movie, I think, kind of got the tone that, that is, you know, if anybody understood the assignment, it was Brian Blessed. Every single line is quotable. And you just, I mean, of course, the Gordon's Alive stuff. I mean, there was a news program that he was hosting, and I'm not sure if it was serious news or, or like, you know, one of the panel shows that they would play on BBC, but they had a whole amazing joke that just went all the way around and around and around because the prime minister at the time, Gordon Brown, and it led all the way back to him. Yes, this is the solemn news uh, that one of our greatest peacetime prime ministers has died. But don't worry, Gordon's alive! By the way, there is an audio commentary on the DVD and Blu-ray of just Brian Blessed, and he doesn't really add that much as far as, like, details of things and a lot of his stories are probably apocryphal like he takes credit for how max von Sydow uses his hands and he's always you know like adjusting his gloves and stuff and i'm like i'm sure max could come up with that as opposed to like brian's like in 20 minutes he was going to make his entrance and i said use your hands max you know and i'm like mm, i'm not sure if that's true brian <laughs> <laughs> there he is with those hands. But listening to his audio commentary, he's so happy and he's just so excited. He's just like, great editing, great direction. Look at that. Isn't that a marvel shot pulling around against the clouds and the Hawkmen? Oh, man, that will never be better. Terrific stuff. Two hours, he's just on and just so on and telling all these stories and just so happy like every time flash is on screen he's just like oh he's so innocent he's it's like that's amazing brian you are really knocking it out of the park that's on the i believe the isn't that on the the british dvd 
Or is that because it, it probably one of is? Because I've got the old. I've bought this fucking thing. On do you remember? Do you remember? We're old men. Do you remember how for the longest time Universal could not release this? A handful of people had to import one from UK, and they, we have to have a region free player for that. But uh, that was where the original. That's where that Brian Blessed commentary came from. And I hope they ported it over to new versions because it's a delight. He's so much fun to listen to. He's such a like you said exuberant, lovable guy. I own it on the old image DVD, which I just rewatched the other day, and it's only the movie. The only special feature is that there are chapters, <laughs> not even a trailer. I bought it on, oh God, I can't remember the name of the company, but it was a French DVD that came with the soundtrack, and that had a Mike Hodges interview on there. And then the Arrow disc that you're talking about, I probably... I think I've bought that like three times because there's a four, four disc set. There was a two disc set. And I'm just like, I didn't even realize that I'd bought it so many times that I'm looking at my shelves going, holy shit, I've got a lot of Flash Gordon here. <laughs> it was my first trip to London. I came home with two DVDs because I didn't have a lot of money, but I had to buy something. Bought myself Flash Gordon. And this was well before Universal put it out in region one, or maybe a year or two. So that felt like a holy grail. Finally, I own Flash Gordon on DVD. And I also bought Spaced seasons one and two because that was well well before that was available in america too so those are my two purchases <laughs> brian blessed just makes this movie for me every time he's on screen it's just such a delight and even just those little moments of him hitting the guards over the head with his club and i love that he's got a club for a weapon you know baron's got you know his stuff and he's so dashing and errol flynn but Man, Brian Bless is just like this big brute with this amazing operatic voice. I just love that character. Voltan is amazing. He's great. All the stuff he does, all the business he's doing where he's messing with the girl on the, messing with, uh, uh, Melody Anderson on the table. He's laughing, you know, and it's like, he, he's kind of a dick, but you never really buy that he's dangerous to our heroes, but he's kind of belligerent. He's kind of selfish, but you know, you know, he's a good guy. <laughs> just, just from the laughing and the voice. Oh, he's, yeah, he's wonderful. When he gooses her, that's probably one of my favorite things. So. Oh. By delivering you, I have laid his suspicions. Her reaction and then his reaction to her reaction. <laughs> oh, his fake surprise and delight is just, that's great. Yeah. If this movie were made today, Brian Blessed would immediately get a spinoff movie. The Adventures of Baron and Voltant. <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of glad that there was never that sequel because I could see the sequel being they escape to Earth, they come back, and Baron and Voltan are now fighting for some reason, and then they have to reunite them. And I'm like, no, no, they should always be friends from now on. Nothing should separate these guys. I love that it does kind of exist as its own thing. There's no sequels. There was no spinoffs. There was, I believe, what, a comic book or a novelization. There, of course, basic stuff. But those sequels might have been great. Who knows? But I just love something about Flash Gordon just being this one singular gem. It was interesting when I was doing my research. I didn't realize that there was a filmation animated series from 1979. So it was like warming up the seat for Flash Gordon the movie. There was an article. I want to say it was – it was either in Starlog. I think it was in Starlog because I was reading some Starlog and then some Starburst, which was like, I think that was the British magazine. 
there was an article in there talking about how we as Americans won't see – it must have been Starlog – how we as Americans won't see – the Flash Gordon animated series that it was available every place else. And they had even taken a few of the episodes and cut them into like a movie version of it, but we won't be able to see it. I mean, now you can find it on the internet pretty easily, but I had no idea. And then watching it, you know, I mentioned Thunder the Barbarian. It, it's very much that same style. And especially cause I think the lion man actually does make an appearance in there. So it's kind of like, What's the guy's name? Um, Ukla the Mock. Ukla the Mock. Thank you. Yeah, that's such a weird design for a cartoon. I loved it. That whole idea of things are thrown back to the Stone Age is kind of what Ming was saying. Like, oh, they won't be the humans that you remember. You know, they'll be a little bit more pliable. And I'm like, oh. Flashing on Mongo, Flash, Dale, and Zarkov are taken before the evil emperor Ming the Merciless, who plans to add Earth to his chain of galactic conquests. While Dr. Zarkov is forced to work in Ming's laboratories, Flash and Dale escape with their new ally, Thun the Lion Man, and flee into the dark cavern world beneath the planet's surface. And now, Chapter 2. The Monsters of Mongo. I love that moment when Ming tempts Flash. It's kind of like Satan tempting Jesus in the desert, you know? You're a hero. I've never met anyone like you before. Oh, and I, I just love the way he delivers the whole, like, so you'd really rather die than work with me. Like, he's like he's not saying it in a... In, in a mocking way, he's literally incredulous. Like, if you had just said, Scott, I'd rather not have a, a thousand free dollars. And I go, so you'd rather not have free money. You know, like, <laughs> he doesn't get it. <laughs> Completely foreign. Do you know that there's a handful of interesting scenes that are missing from various DVDs? Uh, most versions don't have the scene where Clytus wakes up on his ship and, and is informed that Baron and Flash are Hawkman prisoners. The image DVD restores this scene. Uh, in the Universal Laserdisc and video versions, the scene where Flash suggests using the curtains as parachute, par while Zar Zarkov flags down Ming's shuttle, as well as the scene where the young boy in Prince Baron's tribe asks to undergo the Wood Beast test are cut. Also missing is Dale's fight with the guards. These scenes are restored on the image DVD. Did they release, like, the, te the television version by mistake? Because sometimes the TV version will just cut a random superfluous scene just for time. So that makes me think like maybe they got a hold of a TV cut and a network cut and put that on a Blu-ray or DVD. That would be horrible. I know that there was a lot of stuff shot that we've never seen. Um, there are production stills out there. I just ran across one today. There's a Peter Wingard fan site and they have an image of him and aura and he's all in white instead of all in black, which, and apparently when, the ship is coming into Mongo before it lands, before those pig guards are there, that there's a shot of them flying over basically a, a graveyard of all of these other ships like Ming has done this before. I get it. Like a, uh, an anglerfish trick. I get it. Also, gents, I would like to ask you guys this. I, it's, it's bothered me since 1980. What is hot hail? In the theater, my father leaned over to me and said, that's just rain. <laughs> I'm like... Oh yeah, what's hot is. hail? That one button set the whole t whole t whole 
the whole tone of the movie for my father. He was just, he was out. It's amazing how, like, how a certain generation of dads would just, like, you'd hit one moment of ridiculousness, and that was it. They would shut down. I'm done with this movie. Those rocks that are landing that are glowing red because they're so hot, I mean, one of them comes through Zarkov's, which is weird. I don't know why he's living in, like, a big old greenhouse, but it comes through the wind roof, and he says that the moon is breaking up. So I thought that they were just pieces of moon, like meteorites created out of moon rock. No, that's the hot hail that Ming is sending down, I think, to destroy the Earth, isn't he? And then the moon comes later. I thought that this was because of him fucking with the moon. That oh, it's an umbrella. The moon is the umbrella the to the other. The moon is the hot, hot hail, but I could be completely wrong. I mean, the hot hail seems like meteorites. No, no, you're right. I think all this year, all these years, I thought maybe he was just escalating up. I'm, I'm messing with the planet, and then I'm going to throw the moon at it. But your argument would be, no, no, he's throwing the moon at it from the beginning, which is causing these secondary problems. Fragments of moon rock. Our moon is being subjected to some enormous force from outer space, a kind of energy beam. It's an attack. I've been right all these years. It's causing all of that stock footage or B-roll from, uh, was it uh, Meteor that Dino produced? I think it's basically reused footage from another Dino film. Yeah, he'll, he'd reuse anything, that guy. God bless him. God bless the guy. I mean, he produced one of my favorite films of all time, Dune. So he can do no wrong in my book. Dune no wrong? Yeah. Ah. Uh, not a big fan of that one, but always a huge fan of a guy who would say, oh, is this something that people want? I'll throw $45 million at it. And he did. And I, you know, I don't think that dude is very interesting, but I totally respect the effort. He made a lot of junky movies, but he also made a lot of good movies too. Like the one we're discussing now, and it deserved to make more money. This movie deserved to be a bigger hit. Well, and it was strange too. Yeah. We, we go through these things where every few months it's like some, a whole director has to spout off about comic book movies and how horrible they are. And I would never direct a comic book movie and yada, yada, yada. And the comic book movies of their day, literal, were this movement from, I'm not sure exactly when the movement started. I was doing a little research and I was finding like, there was a Brenda Starr TV movie from like 76. Of course, there's Superman in 78, but then you get up to like 79 and you're starting Buck Rogers, the TV series. You've got Popeye in 1980. You've got this in 1980. You've got Annie in 1982. You've got Batman was supposed to be a movie. I want to say closer to like 85. They were starting work on that. So it's like all of these like serials, comic strips, and cartoons from the old days started to be uh, adapted for properties back in the late 70s, early 80s. I think a lot of times when a modern director says, oh, a comic book movie, I would never do that, or I don't want no interest in that. What I hear is I don't want to do that formula, that blueprint. But somebody came to Robert Altman at one point and said, do you want to turn Popeye into a movie? Not do you want to do it in a uh, generic boilerplate way, but do you want to adapt Popeye? And Robert Altman said, yeah, I can try that. And Mike Hodges was not handed a template. He was, you know, he was handed like a, a concept from an old pulpy adventure and he made the best possible version that he could. I, it irritates me when people talk shit about this movie. That That's how I, I take it, not personally, but it, it irritates me. Whereas there's lots of movies I love where if you talk shit about them, I wouldn't care because that's your opinion and I could just not listen 
or argue with you. But a lot of times I find that people rate a movie based on what they think its reputation is. So when they hear Ishtar, they, they like their knee jerk reaction is to go, look, Ishtar. I'm like, well, have you even seen Ishtar? Flash Gordon, 1941, Popeye, you know, and it's like these movies have been discussed as money losers or as weird movies for years. I think a lot of times people, without having seen them, they're kind of considered damaged goods already, which is why it's so much fun to talk about them, because Flash Gordon is awesome. And I don't think Flash Gordon lost that much money. Like, apparently, Dino was never very clear when it came to accounting for how much something cost. And some of these sets, I mean, the Arborea set, the th- throne room set. I mean, I was talking about Fellini earlier and uh, Danito Denali being the decorator and the uh, set production designer. His stuff, I mean, he worked with Fellini for so many of Fellini's greatest stuff, like Satyricon and Amacord and all these things. These sets were really pricey. So we still don't know how much the movie costs, but they're saying it made, you know, almost $50 million and it might have cost 27, 35 million. So it wasn't losing that much, but it wasn't doubling, you know, it wasn't tripling, wasn't quadrupling how much money they put into it. So then it was a quote unquote failure. You know, it wasn't the next Star Wars. The way Dano De Laurentiis was looking at it is if it's a smash hit, we'll make two more. And if it's anything other than a smash hit, I'm moving on. Mike Hodges was a weird choice for this movie to direct it. And he had a lot of troubles. I do appreciate how honest he is about how difficult it was to make. But then when you're listening to the commentary, he's talking, you know, how he had problems with Dino. He had problems with, you know, just not being able to communicate with some of the people that were on set because it was so many Italians and he didn't speak Italian. They didn't speak English. But really, it sounds like he had some fun as well. I mean, he is laughing quite a few times through that commentary. I think he can look back at it now fondly, but maybe he wasn't super fond at the time. Hollywood lore indicates that uh, Dano De Laurentiis could be a very difficult man to work with, or maybe even an outright asshole. Who knows? Uh, but I, I think that the the cool thing about something like this is you had a, an estranged director, the guy who made Get Carter, which is great, but it's a gritty, realistic crime thriller. It's not necessarily the director you'd think of when you want to make a, a fantastical, tongue-in-cheek, pulpy, campy sci-fi adventure. So I, I sometimes think that when you go against the grain – you get a, a, a more polished gem. I, I just think that sometimes the, the, the director who's not the obvious choice is the more interesting choice. There's been a period in my life where I've gone through different versions of, what do you mean that they're hiring that person to do this point that for it's, you know, Oh, uh, Tom Hanks is going to do serious movies. Get out of here. I mean, think about it. If you were a, a Popeye enthusiast in 1979 and they said, well, Disney and Paramount are teaming up to make a Popeye movie, you'd think of 10 or 12 different filmmakers who'd be fast. Well, give it to Disney fil- productions or this animation director or this adventure action director. Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, no, no, we're going to give it to the guy who did McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Nashville. That must have seemed like absurd. And maybe it still does. But I think Popeye is a thing of beauty. But yeah, it's it's taken a lot to change how I think. And I think the last one that did it was um, years ago, <laughs> which is weird to say now, um, when somebody told me that the guy that made Meet the Feebles is going to be entrusted with $14 trillion to make Lord of the Rings. I'm like, that's going to be garbage. I've seen Meet the Feebles and everything else he's done. I like them, but I don't know how the estate is letting him near this property. 
and then he made almost flawless flawless movies. So I don't judge anybody right off the bat anymore. No, I mean, I knew Peter Jackson was a brilliantly talented filmmaker, but no, if you had said, do you think this guy could do three epic Lord of the Rings movies? I'd be like, based on what I've seen? Not really. <laughs> but Nope, but he could have puppets make out. We could do that. I mean, a brilliant filmmaker is a brilliant filmmaker. And, you know, if you just try and pigeonhole somebody into one genre, you know, that's your mistake. I was really confused when it came to Thor and it was like, okay, you know, I could understand Kenneth Branagh doing the first Thor. Like, oh, cool. You know, like Thor's very ponderous and just, you know, like super steeped in, steeped in the classics. Yeah. It does have a, it's a cousin to what Branagh has done with, you know, Shakespeare and whatnot. Yeah. And then when Taika Waititi got chosen to Wait, do the you, third you one. Wait, you skip Alan Taylor like that? I, <laughs> I did skip Alan Taylor like that. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell, man? You know, what, how are they going to, why T- Taika Waititi? And then when that movie started, I was like, oh my God, this is fucking brilliant. And I had no idea just how funny Chris Hemsworth could be. It's so funny that you brought it back to uh, uh, Thor Ragnarok because there were moments in that movie not not the first time I saw it, but when I learned later that like Tycho was a huge Flash Gordon fan, I'm like, yeah, it's right there. Look look at Ragnarok. It has kind of this pulpy, campy, colorful, uh, jumping from story to story. I got to watch Ragnarok again. I, I've seen it like three times. It is far and away, maybe not far and away, but it is my favorite MCU movie. I love it. Yeah, and you even have the um, the Ming and Clytus thing going on where, you know, will he betray him and uh, betray Hella and and yep, yep. I don't know what I'm talking. about. Oh, you know who else loves uh, Flash Gordon? You probably both know is uh, uh, Edgar Wright. Oh, oh yeah. of course, yeah. Director of the very good, uh, what is it? One Night in Soho, Last Night in Soho. I haven't seen that one yet. After After Baby Driver, I'm not really in the mood to rush out and see many of his things. It's really good, it, and I was okay with Baby Driver. I didn't love it, but this is better. This is it, this is an interesting noirish. Uh, throwback it's curious to hear what you think of it so i did want to go on record and say that i reached out to mr hodges and he had just done i reached out to him probably about a year ago and he had just done like a retrospective he managed to do it while covid was going on he was very like touch and go about that but he had been interviewed a bunch about flash right around the time so i was like hey how about i reach out again in a few months he was like yeah, I don't know, but that he's nice enough to actually respond to my emails. He's a very, very nice gentleman. Um, we've spoken before. We might have, I think we might have talked a little bit about Flash on the Get Carter episode. I think he's going to come back next year when we talk about another one of his films, which to the earlier point is very unlike pulp and get Carter in these films. I'll sleep when I'm dead. We're going to be talking about morons from outer space. Which I fucking love that movie. Just popped up on Tubi or something a few weeks ago, and I tweeted about it. I didn't even thought about that movie in 25 years. So good. Uh, and it's best remembered for the scene in which the guy sneezes inside the uh, space helmet, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. So good. I'm going to have to see if I can find the soundtrack for that, because some of those songs that the aliens are doing at the end are just fantastic. But I did manage to get two interviews for this show, so we're going to take a break and we're going to play those back. First up, we've got John Walsh, who is the author of Flash Gordon, the official story of the film, and then Michael Allen, the original screenwriter for Flash Gordon. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. 
Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. (laughs) And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, <laughs> tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B-Movie Reel. Shoot it! Shoot it! <laughs> that's about describes it, yeah. Alright, everybody stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Be known throughout the ages as an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> Flying limbs, I called them. it in my notes. What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out. And since they've been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. By this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. How did you get interested in films and filmmaking? I got interested in films and filmmaking, seeing the films of Ray Harryhausen in the cinema. So The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, Clash of the Titans, these were in the cinemas at the time when I was... um, been taken there by my parents so they bought me a super 8 camera 
which is a little film camera which has cassettes of film that you place inside. And I did my own sort of animations at home. Nothing quite as elaborate as what Ray Harryhausen was attempting. But through my sort of school years, up until the age of sort of 14, 15, I kept making films. So I'd started when I was about eight years old. And uh, by the time I was 15, I was pretty confident that uh, I could be going to film school soon. And so um, that's what happened. I, I became, uh, I, I won a prize on the BBC, BBC Young Filmmaker of the Year. Then I decided when I was doing my A-levels, which is the, the last set of exams you do before you head off to uh, what we would call university and you'd call college. I applied to a couple of the film schools. Well, there was only two in the UK at the time, the National Film and Television School and the London Film School. And uh, I got accepted at both, and I took a place at the London Film School. And it was there that I met Ray Harryhausen, and uh, I made a sort of a, a short film um, about his, his his life and work. And that's me, Mike, back in the day when I was 18. And I was um, making a documentary about Ray Harryhausen and his creatures. And effectively, I stayed in touch. So when I left film school, I started making dramas. I didn't make any stop-motion feature films or any creature features. But I stayed in touch with Ray. He was interested because he was a producer. People forget about this. He was a film producer. When we think of the producers, we think of, obviously, Mel Brooks's crazy film, The Producers. And people always kind of think of producers with a negative kind of connotation. Ah, the producer stopped me. Ray was a producer on all of his films. It's something that it's not widely discussed or talked about, but essentially it puts him at the very centre of the decision-making process. So he was quite interested in how you get a programme on the BBC, how you get things commissioned by networks and broadcasters. And I have my own company, I still do, making programmes for different TV channels. And um, Some of those now are on Prime Video. I made a feature film about the death of Henry VIII, as you do. Um, I made a political feature film. And I'd always stay in touch with Ray. I'd send him postcards and let him know what I'm up to. And then in more recent times, when he hit his 90th birthday, he asked me to become a trustee of his foundation. It was great because I kind of brought a different perspective. I, I was kind of an independent filmmaker in the, in the way that Ray made films independently of other people. You know, I've been a trustee now there for a few years, along with his daughter, Vanessa Harryhausen. And we look after the kind of the creature collection which has things like the Kraken and all the creatures that you know, but also the thousands and thousands of items that um, they've never been seen because they're development pieces or for projects that were never made. And so that brought me on to Harry House and the Lost Movies, which was my first published book. I'd written for television, I'd written for newspapers and magazines, but this was my first bona fide book. And I think once you have a book out, people are like, oh, you can write. And it's like, no, I've been writing for years. No, but this is this is proper, isn't it? It's bound into a book and could go into a library. And like the other stuff was proper too. So book number one, not expecting there to be a book number two by any means. Um, but there was, there was a book two, a book three, and I'm currently working on a book four. And there's talk of book five by the end of the year. So I've become an unexpected author. At, um, I'm always at a late stage in my life because uh, I'm still, as it were, living my life. But it's been an interesting road, you know, that travelled through film school, Ray Harryhausen, and now this. But the charity Ray set up in the 80s, the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, only has three trustees, myself, Vanessa, and Simon McIntosh, who's the lawyer for the foundation. And we all do it completely gratis. We don't get paid. We have one paid member of staff, Connor Heaney, who I do a series of podcasts with. Um, and that pretty much brings you up to date. If people want to find out more about me, they can Google John Walsh Filmmaker and find me in a suit at the BAFTAs and other places. But there's tons online. Tell me about your relationship with Flash Gordon, the movie. 
Flash Gordon, I was very excited when it came out because I was a big fan of the Star Wars films and of Superman. Flash Gordon seemed to have both. It seemed to have all of the promise of Star Wars with lots of spaceships. Well, there are no robots. Uh, I was quite disappointed. No robots, no droids, nothing. I, I still have a problem with that. Anyway, um, and I was a big fan of the flying in the first Superman film. I really thought that was magical. And you couldn't find out anywhere at the time how it was really done. They did it with different techniques. And even the clips that were shown on television in the UK were first sparingly shown. So you really had to go to the cinema to see the flying properly. And so I thought, here we go, Flash Gordon, it has like Superman and Star Wars together. It wasn't quite that. Of course, when we see the film, we know that um, there was limitations, not on the budget. The budget was spectacularly large. It was um, three times what Star Wars cost. But they didn't have the time. A lot of the decisions that were made for special effects and casting and story were as a result of having no time. But I was impacted by the film. I enjoyed it. I was also a fan of Star Wars. This is the thing, Mike. You know, people think you either are in the Star Wars camp or the Flash Gordon camp, or it's either Star Trek, the motion picture, or the Empire Strikes Back. It was both, or three for me. You know, I liked all of those movies. I liked anything sci-fi. I enjoyed the film. I was disappointed it didn't do better than it did. And this book gave me the opportunity to find out what could have been, what if, and how comes it was like this. And if you had that much money, why did you do that? And where was the motion control? And why did you not get this optic process from the Superman people? I thought we had more money than God on this film. What happened? So I was able to officially ask those questions of the people who made those decisions and find out what George Lucas was really up to when he tried to get the rights and didn't, and then went off and made it anyway and called it Star Wars. Well, how did the book project come about for you? I just finished Harry Howes and the Lost Movies, and it was doing very well. And Tyson Books, who have become sort of the home of, of these kind of big making of books, a lot of the great ones in the recent years have been from Tyson. The uh, My editor there said to me, the commissioning editor, Simon Ward, said to me, do you fancy doing you know something else? And I said, like another Harry Housen book? And he said, well, yeah, maybe. And I said, oh, well, you know, next year, and I was speaking in 2019, I said, next year, it's the 40th anniversary of Flash Gordon, the movie. And I said, you know, no one's ever done a book on that. Maybe, you know, there could be a book. And he was like, okay, and would you like to write it? I said, well, yes. Or I'd like you to print it so I can buy and read it. It'd be much easier. Um, because, you know, it's, it's a quite an effort to write a book. So he said, well, we've thought of that already. We, we tried to do it on the 35th anniversary. I was like, oh, okay, so it's not my wonderful, great idea where I'm bringing this project back from the dead. No, no, John, you know, we, we've been trying for a few years. We've looked at a lot of projects. There's a rights issue around it and so on. But he said, you know, when we last looked at it, the rights were described like a hornet's nest. And, um, and it, all it simply meant was, King Features, who are the publishing arm who created the comic strip for Flash Gordon in the 1930s with Alex Raymond, owned the characters and the comic strips and the name Flash Gordon. Universal Pictures, the film company, made the film with the great Dino De Laurentiis, the film producer, the Italian film producer in the 80s. And so there's kind of an interest there between both Universal and Dino. And all of Dino's catalogue, or most of it, is now owned by the French company Studio Canal. You start to think, oh, who do I ask? And what about music? Do I have to ask Brian May, Queen? What, what, what's the thing about that? Because even though the book isn't playing the music, you want photos perhaps of the group and, and so on. 
And then I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I've done deals in TV before. I've managed to get the rights for things before. I know if it can be done, it, it, it should be done, and I'll give it a go. So I spent eight months getting all of the parties kind of together and then creating a scenario of what if, what would be the limitations from your end and from your end and from your end. And so we, we got everyone effectively around a virtual table and we got an agreement. It happened. You know, it was all signed off and uh, and we went ahead. And then I got the shock of my life, Mike, when uh, I started to write the book. And I was like, right, where are all the photos? And they were like, uh, I beg your pardon? I said, you know, the photos I'll need, like you've seen J.W. Rinsler's books. I want loads of shots of um, Ming drinking coffee and uh, maybe Sam Jones having his back waxed and all the models being flown on drinks. You know, the pictures, the pictures that are going to make this book sing out so I don't have to write too much. They were like, oh, um, there's the front of house sets. And I was like, that's like eight. And I mean, that's like, you've got the, the transparencies for those? No, we've got printed ones and there's, there's some scans and... And there's, there'll be what you find on the internet. I was like, oh, okay. What about universal pictures in their archive? They must have, you know, the archive of archives. They were like, well, it's not quite straightforward as that. And it wasn't because the assets for the film that we would want, like the, the photos of and, and the behind the scenes, the sketches, the concept art, all these things, and were owned by Dino De Laurentiis. And his legal interests in Flash Gordon and lots of other films, including June and King Kong, went into receivership in the mid-1980s, 1985. So he lost control of those titles and all the associated paperwork. So I spoke to um, Martha De Laurentiis, who gave me full access to everything she could. And we discovered that um, there was no assets that had been retained because where do you start? You know, do you keep the models and the costumes? Now, if it was me, I'd keep the sets. I would live in the sets and that would be my house. I would live in Ming's Palace. I have friends around and I'm like a hoarder, proper style hoarder, like Ray Harryhausen, who never threw anything out. I'm like, if you can keep it, just in case, keep it. Of course, Dino is making hundreds of movies. It's not that he doesn't care, but I mean, he's a businessman. He needs to move forward, move forward, move forward. What are we going to do? I've been commissioned to write this book. I've signed the contract. It needs to sing and dance with lots of fantastic pictures. It's got to be more than just what you've seen reproduced in the TV guide or in film magazines. And it's got really good quality. These books are expensive and they have a certain pixelation size or DPI image size that you need for each image. So I had to go to the fan base. And, and luckily for me, there was a, a very strong fan base for Flash Gordon. And there was a couple of people in particular, Rolf Screedy, who has the best armaments of Flash Gordon. I'm sure he would be um, Ming's kind of uh, minister for armory if he was um, on Mongo, because he has everything. And Bob Linden there, who's like the number one Flash Gordon fan of everything else, who had photos and sketches and contacts. And it was like, great, well, we're, we're possibly more than half the way there. But this was like an onion. The more you peeled one layer back, it was like, hang on, there was another film that was going to be made. And it was going to be made in 1979. What about that one? And it was like, oh, right, yes, I've heard about this. I wasn't sure if it was really true. I was able to ask the people involved. Yes, Dina was going to go in 79 with a different Flash Gordon, the same kind of story, but with the director, Nicholas Rogue. And he created at great expense, wonderful colour artworks that had never been seen or published before. And uh, these were being held prisoner in an archive in London. So with the help of Studio Canal, who licensed the uh, Flash Gordon book, they helped me um, 
rescue those images. So now everything's in there. So fast forwarding to when the book was published, I did online um, interviews with people like Brian Blessed and Mike Hodges, the film's director. And if people go to my, I hope you don't mind me plugging it, Mike, but if people go to my website on YouTube, Walsh Brothers TV, they can find Flash Gordon, the official story of the film, vodcast, and this little mini playlist. And you can hear Mike Hodges giving his verdicts on my book, where he talks about, wow, I've never seen this before. I didn't know that happened. This is like a definitive behind the scenes. It's like, it's good he said that because um, Mike is one of those people who will tell it as it is. You know, it was a tough shoot for him. It was not something he wanted to do at the time, particularly. And it's now one of the films he's most remembered for. So there's a lot of mixed feelings about that from, from his point of view. The book was a success. It's going to a second print run now, which is which is fabulous. And then Titan asked me to do something else, which is very different, but also in a similar vein. And that is a film that's beloved and it's having an anniversary this year. Of course, it's John Carpenter's Escape from New York. What were some of the most surprising things that you found when you were doing your research for the Flash Gordon book? Well, I think the first most surprising thing was that there was no care taken over the assets professionally. professionally. Now, the, the physical assets of the film itself, um, that was always kept in pretty good condition. So there'd be eight or 10 cans of that. So you could sit that in a room, in a corner of a room. It'd be the size of R2-D2 and a half if you were to put it into a corner. But the amount of material that would be involved for filming the film would be sometimes 40 or 50 times that amount. So all of the camera negs and camera rushes, they're all gone. There's very little in the way of trims or deleted scenes. There are some cans in the Studio Canal archive. And I did a vodcast with a couple of the lads from the archive who did the restoration. We talked about that. So it surprised me there wasn't more trims. I keep trims of my own stuff. Even though no one wants to see my stuff, this is the irony, isn't it? You know, I've kept trims and all my TV shows from years back and they're going on to Prime Video. It's good they're going on and there's not a clamber for them. And meanwhile, films that do have a big clamber for them, people want to see every possible scene and deleted element. They've been thrown out. They've been put into a bin or, or recycled. So it surprised me there wasn't more associated assets around the film itself. Very little around secondary assets like photographs, nothing around models and physical props. So that's all within the fan base. So everything's been scattered. And you might think, well, why should people keep it? Think George Lucas, you know, he could go into the um, archive for Lucasfilm and find probably the original land speeder that they had on Tatooine and, and the various small model versions and all the glass paintings and everything else. You know, you've got the opposite thing happening down the road at Universal with Dino and this film, which costs three times more. It always surprises me because I'm a geek and a fanboy. I'm like, no, don't throw that out. Don't, no, 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 keep that. I'm always horrified. The hairs on the back of my neck stand up when I hear stories of how they bulldozed the set or they threw it out the back. I'm a big fan of the 1976 King Kong. And I know that the Carla Rimbaldi animatronic Kong, which was only used briefly at the end of the film, Barry Nolan, who worked on Flash Gordon and was a, a great sort of admirer of Dino and, and worked on King Kong, he said that that Kong was basically chucked out the back in the studio space when Dino had his own studio, and it, it more or less went to rot. So when they did King Kong Lives in 85, 86, they went and had a look at it. And of course, and I was like, wow, if I'd had that, 
I would have moved into like a glass dome, like a James Bond villain. And I would have lived around that Kong and I would have kept it and combed it every day and, and sprayed it with oil. And I mean, that's me. That's me. But I'm always flabbergasted by how little regard people have for great films. And this is now considered to be a great film. Some people may like it. They may not like it. It's a bona fide great film. Studio Canal spent a fortune restoring it in 4K. It sold like great guns to people who'd already bought it. My book sold quicker than the Harryhausen because Queen are more popular now than they had been for a long time as well because of the Bohemian Rhapsody film. There is much more interest. I even found a picture of Queen that's never been published before. So that lovely big picture, Mike, you would have seen in the book of all the lads posing. They look like they're in school when they're so young. That's never been published before. I got that from a Japanese company um, who allowed me access to that. We paid a license for it. So to buy these books or to revisit these films, you need a reason. It's got to be either 4K or extra stuff, something you haven't seen before um, or, or in 3D or you know, next there'll be a holographic version. You can step inside and sit there and have your ice cream while me and everyone else moves around you. You know, in 20 years time, you might be talking about that. I think part of my motivation to find out what happened and what went wrong and who went wrong, that's why I wrote the book. So I, I saw it less of a making of and more of a um, true crimes podcast because there were some naughty people on this film. I'm talking, I'm talking about you, Sam Jones, who behaved in a way that they now regret and they're now sorry for but the stories that the actors told didn't necessarily corroborate what I'd read and what I've also been told by the production team so I kind of had to get all everyone's timelines together and call them back in for another interview you know how the police do and they'd say yeah if we can just go through this one more time I've told you already and it's like yeah but um the day before the shoot on Flash Gordon you got into a fight now how many football players in Soho did you fight because we heard it was it was less than 10. You're saying it's more. And how many stitches in your face? We heard it was two, but you're saying it was 10 in the emergency room. So it might not seem that important, but because it's the official version and it's sanctioned and licensed by Studio Canal and King Features, and I'm a big fan of Dino De Laurentiis, I wanted to make sure that we straightened everything out because there might not be a chance to revisit this. And, you know, there's so many books out there on Star Wars and, you know, Alien has got a book about Jonesy the Cat. And I was like, what? I mean, not that it's a bad thing. It's a great thing, but I haven't got time to read that. I mean, I've still got last year's Aliens in cling wrap. I haven't opened it yet. I'm still about to read it. Whereas Flash Gordon hasn't had, he's only had this. So, and this, as I'm told, might be the only time it will happen. So the pressure was get it right. Is there any truth to the rumor that uh, Federico Fellini almost directed a version of Flash Gordon? Yes, that's right. So in the 70s, Dino had worked with Fellini, of course, in, in, in Europe. And Dino had a great reputation as an arts house producer. And he, when he went to America, decided to, to do things much more commercially. But Barbarella was probably the nearest thing which brought both the European sensibility and the American sci-fi look and feel that Flash Gordon would eventually have together. Um, but yes, Fellini was considered. Lots of directors had been considered. Because Dino wanted to shoot in the UK, he needed to find a UK-based director and, and somebody who'd done science fiction. Now, Nicholas Rogue had done The Man Who Fell to Earth, the David Bowie film. That's the reason he asked him to be the director on Flash Gordon. So it's an unusual choice because The Man That Fell to Earth, was, which is a brilliant piece of cinema, is not a big special effects film. Like, you know, it's not like, um, you know, other films at the time, like Superman's and the Star Trek and so on. 
the choices Dino made didn't follow in other people's footsteps. And you can see that consistently with the film. You know, his remake of King Kong didn't follow in the footsteps of the 1933 one. It took the premise only. Whereas, um, you know, when we look at Sam Jackson's version of King Kong, Peter Jackson's, it's it does follow in the 1933 footprint and expands on it and has the same scenarios and, and almost the same nods to the music. So, you know, Dino really used to 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 cut his own path. But yeah, Fellini would have been an interesting, <laughs> interesting choice. And of course, Santilino Donato, who did the costume design and the production design, which is really unusual, is, is a favourite of Fellini. So you, you can see some of those um, European influences there. And I, and I think the film does have a European vibe. People say it's because it was shot in London. It isn't because lots of big movies, Star Wars, Raiders, The Shining, you know, these are the Pink Panthers. These are all shot in London, Superman. It's because Dino brought that European sensibility. So you have very few US actors in there. You, know, you have um, Topol, who, who, who does an American accent, but of course is originally from Israel. And Sam Jones and Melody Anderson, of course, playing the leads. But, but mostly you, you have a mix of who was available and most of them weren't American. You talked earlier about how they were under a rush for time. And I'm curious why that rush. Did they have a particular date that they need to make? Yes, they had to make, and this was crucial, and this was crucial to every decision they made about everything that happened on the picture. They had to hit Christmas 1980. So Christmas 1980 was the date. Theatres were, were ready for the picture. It was a very big opening. If you think about it, when a picture opens today, obviously it's a bit of a to-do because you have to create what's called a DCP or digital cinema print, but that's effectively like a hard drive. And a lot of cinemas now can download the film and then play it directly as a as a four or sometimes 8K. In those days, a cinema would need a print, so it'd be on probably about 10 reels for a film of that length. So 10 reels in each cinema would be one copy of the film times whatever, maybe a 1,000 prints. I mean, that's a major mechanical process job for Kodak and laboratories to create all of that stock and get all of those. It's a big shipment thing. You know, when we think of in Thanksgiving and in, in America on Black Friday and you need to get your packages, it's a major shipment thing. You can't be a day or two late because it would completely mess up the production chain that you're in for creating millions and millions of feet of film for these audiences that are waiting. So the clock started ticking on Dino. He raised some money um, independently and then got a guarantee from Universal Pictures, who then took the film if it was delivered on time. Again, time is a factor. But the things that kind of ate into the time, the he had a falling out with Mike Hodges during the Flash Gordon shoot. Before that, he had a falling out with the original Flash Gordon director, Nicholas Rogue. So the artwork that he created that you'll see in my new book, Flash Gordon, the official story of the film, looks very different to what ended up on screen, I think, and has a much more organic look. And his tone for the film was going to be much more adult, both adult in terms of the treatment of the material, but also adult in terms of like sexiness. This is an adult feature, you know, that kind of thing. When someone says adult, you know, ooh, that's kind of means maybe boobs and bums and so on. And, and Dino can't go there because this needs to be a universal, either an A certificate or a U certificate, which means that most people can get in even with their parents. It couldn't even be anywhere near a 15 or a 12 that was created in, in 1984 for, I think it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and like this 12 certificate. That wasn't going to work. And so Nicholas Rogue, who was a, you know, a great auteur in himself, decided, well, maybe not the right fit for me. 
there was no Anne blazing row or anything, but they decided to part company. Dino was left with, well, hang on, what are we going to do? Because I still got this Christmas 1980 deadline. And so he thought ahead. One of the things I found out is that Dino wanted to buy Pinewood Film Studios, which is just outside of London. And the reason for that was because he intended to make three Flash Gordon films back to back. This was going to be the first. And the director for the second Flash Gordon film, which was going to be set on Mars, was going to be Mike Hodges. Bizarrely, Mike Hodges was suggested by Nicholas Rogue. When Dino and Nicholas Rogue were getting on together, Dino said, well, who, who could do the next picture? And he said, oh, Mike Hodges, great director from Get Carter and lots of other films. And what's he working on now? He's working on the second Omen film, Damien Omen 2. Oh, okay. Anyway, suddenly Mike became available when he left after kind of clashing with the producers on Omen 2. And so he got the job of directing the first Flash Gordon film. And of course, the rest we know is, is, is history. But when Mike came on board, he found that, no, no, we have to keep talking, we have to keep walking, we have to keep shooting. Whatever it is, we keep shooting. One of the questions I asked Mike as part of this book, and I had to ask everyone this, is did you take any photos of yourself on set? And do you have any photos, you know? And uh, he said, look, John, I know you have to ask that, but I mean, there is no way I took photos. There was a director's chair with my name on it. And he said, my ass never saw it for the whole shoot because he said, I don't even remember sitting down because we were walking from one set to another. I was approving stuff. We were shooting. I was tearing pages out of the script. Who can we lose? The first character they lost was effectively the Chewbacca from the Flash Gordon universe, Lion Man. Oh, George Lucas. Naughty, naughty. Not as naughty as Sam Jones, but still mm, very naughty. Um, so all of the Lion Man stuff came out, but we found in the storyboards that we've got for the film, you can see Lion Man in there. So the never-before-published storyboards, which of course we do have in the book, show the sequences that could have been filmed, should have been filmed, but because of time, Christmas were cut. You might think, well, that's, that's a terrible thing to do, but if you missed the Christmas you really have missed your chance because people don't always go to the cinema in January and February, regardless of the film. You know, this was different waves at the time where parents were happier to spend at Christmas, sometimes at summertime and your memorial weekend there in, in the US. These are traditional times when people feel like, I'm happy to queue, I'm happy to see something. If you miss those pivotal times, the consumer won't. Look, um, if, if you wanted the Millennium Falcon in the mid 80s, you'd pay anything to get it at Christmas. But come January, you're like, mm, yeah, or maybe I'll wait till next Christmas. And consumers are like that. They, they are like um, timed sheep. Um, my books always come out just before Christmas because it's all about putting that in your stocking. So the time factor went across every question I asked everyone from the production. They could have afforded motion control on this picture. It's how the spaceships flew in Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. There wasn't time. There wasn't time to set up a complicated camera system that was um, computer controlled so that it could repeat movements so you can get these beautiful aerial ballets. That wasn't possible. So they ended up, ironically, despite this horrendously large budget of nearly $35 million. I mean, that's nuts. That's not 1979, $35 million. Star Trek, the motion picture had a similar kind of budget, but um, the original Star Wars was somewhere between seven or 11, depending on who you speak to. Um, and that had really complicated aerial ballets in it. Um, so no, they flew them on strings, as they did in the 1930s cinema serial. It's like, wow, really? Yep, 
because we just had to get the shots done once they were in focus and there was no hairs in the gate. It's like, that's a print, let's move on. Even in the setups, which means the way you film with the actors, there's there's some inserts and close-ups, but there isn't a lot of camera movement. There isn't a lot of um, individual shots and, and setups. And the set's got what's called a pre-light, which isn't something that directors of photography like to do. A pre-light is what you'd find on a show like... Um, uh, maybe uh, Heart to Heart or Magnum or Chinese Angels or Dallas, where it's shot on 35 millimeter, but the whole thing is lit from a lighting grid. There are no lamps on the floor, so it gives a kind of an overall f- feel, and it's, it's it's quite a bland way to light because there's no texture to it. And that's not the case in every scene in Flash Gordon, but in a lot of the big scenes, it's a pre-light, um, because they had to, because they didn't, they didn't have, again, time. We've got money, but time... And it's about who's available. So it'd be like if I said to you, Mike, in the next hour, I would give you a million dollars, but only in the next hour, if you could run out and find someone who could do great tattoos or who could do fire eating. And you might have in your contacts people you could ask. But as that time ticks away in that hour and that million dollars is, is, is going to go, you know, every, every minute that goes in that clock, that's the level of lunacy it was on a film where they had 30 five million dollars but no time to get the people in and no time even if they did to set up the rigs for the flying for the special effects for the monster scenes there was going to be a a rancor style sequence at the end because ming turns himself into this kind of giant frog creature so i'm imagining it'd be like the rancor in the empire strikes but in return of the jedi that was cut anything that was going to take too much that was cut the spider sequence where melody anderson becomes a spider there's one surviving continuity Polaroid that's in the book, gone. And the deleted scene at the end where Ming disappears into his ring but reappears somewhere else, only a black and white photo in the book. The footage is gone and they never finished it. Um, it was all about looking at the watch first and that would dictate the decisions next. Fascinating, really. Well, you mentioned that your books come out around Christmas time. Is this year, this is the Escape from New York book? Yes, so the next book up is Escape from New York, the official story of the film. So you can see a pattern here. <laughs> um, but this is officially licensed by the rights owner, who in this case are Studio Canal, who also own the rights uh, to the film rights to Flash Gordon. This was a tricky one because um, it's not got the same budget as Flash Gordon. It had a $6 million budget at the time, the biggest budget John Carpenter ever had, and very ambitious film and a very dark film as well. So I was fascinated to see how do you make a grand coffee table book from this? And, and similar problems persisted on this in that the assets for the film that you'd want to see weren't in the places you'd expect to find them. So I, I sort of had to put my Indiana Jones hat on to try and track down what we needed for this, which were all those interesting behind the scenes shots, the artwork and so on. Because it's a lower budget, there are less colour shots and there are less color artworks it's mostly line drawings but it's still fascinating to see and and quite a lot of detail on the special effects in this as well all of the parties who are with us took part in the book which is fabulous so it really does give a kind of a new 40th anniversary perspective on it and when you think at the time what other films came out in 1981 there aren't many that are getting this grand reappraisal you know raiders of the lost ark came out then as well so the clash of the titans but there aren't too many of the others from that period that, that um, people will remember or are getting the 4K treatment. Again, same question. What was the most surprising thing you found when you were doing your research for Escape from New York? 
I suppose the thing, oh, well, it's the first thing that springs to mind. It's this, uh, Drew Struzan, who's a very famous poster artist, um, he did some poster work for Escape from New York that's never been seen, and that's that's now in the book. And Drew, of course, worked on The Thing uh, with John Carpenter and Big Trouble in Little China as well. And he's a, he's a, he's a marvellous artist. You know, Spielberg and Lucas were always asked to work with him. That was a surprise. And getting those images was a surprise. And also how the film was pitched, because originally Embassy Pictures, who were big fans of John Carpenter, said, come and do this picture. We want you to direct the Philadelphia experiments because we think it's just up your, your avenue. And we've had a big hit with you with the fog and we think you're just right for it. And John was like, yeah, I could see maybe why you'd think that. But um, I've got another script in my car. Can I show you this? So he took out this script and gave it to Bob Remy. And it was inspired by the resignation of US President Richard Nixon in the um, in the mid-70s then over the Watergate scandal. And here, who'd have thought Richard Nixon don't seem like such a bad guy these days, does he? Just saying, I'm in the UK, so if you need to send me hate mail, you can. But, you know, not, not that. I mean, he did things that were great, but, you know, the presence in Escape from New York, uh, Donald Pleasant's character, or just the president, he never has a name other than the president, was slightly based on the paranoia in the US at the time that things were rotten at the very top. But Donald Pleasant doesn't seem too bad as a president either. At the time, he was meant to be this terrible portrayal of this 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 um, very selfish, self centered egotist who's who's managed to get to the claw his way to the top of the uh, the power tree, as it were. And yet, when we think today, he doesn't seem too bad. I imagine if he stood for for office today, he'd probably do pretty well, pretty pretty well. It surprised me some of the casting choices, some of the other people who the studio wanted, Charles Bronson hot from the um, Death Wish series or the first Death Wish film being very successful. I think Death Wish 2 hadn't happened at this point when they were casting and they were quite insistent. It needs to be Charles Bronson. And people might think, no, no, that's a terrible choice. He actually is quite an informed choice because I think he would have played it quite well. He would have gone into that situation and and he would have given a good performance. Um, One of the reasons John didn't want... um, Charles Bronson is because he didn't know the actor and the actor had a higher status than John Carpenter did at the time. And he felt, rightly so, that um, Bronson may have taken control of the shoots. And I mean, there's nothing to suggest that would have happened. You know, he was always good on other shoots. But um, there is a really um, interesting example of this. And it's when um, Kurt Douglas was on Spartacus and fell out with the director because um, Kurt Douglas has set the production up. It's always a bit of a mistake when the actor is also a producer on the picture. Um, people who think it's not a mistake, speak to people who've had actors as producers um, and uh, lead actors as producers. It's it's never a, a sort of a happy situation. Um, a well-known film has recently, you know, in the last couple of years, lost an Oscar-winning director because an actor who'd been promoted to producer thought, I can fire the uh, director. And he did. He thought he could be in a situation where that would happen. Of course, it backfired on... Kirk Douglas, because he got his old mate in, Stanley Kubrick, who he thought Kubrick would do as he asked or demanded of him. And of course, Stanley Kubrick doesn't do doesn't do that for anyone. You know, Stanley Kubrick is there to make the best film he possibly can, which he did. So I can understand John being reluctant to have someone um, outside of his comfort zone. He'd worked with uh, Kurt Russell before on the television movie Elvis, which was a great ratings success and had a theatrical release in, in Europe and had won awards as well. So the studio was quite anxious because 
Kurt Russell is a very nice person. His screen persona is very pleasant and what we might consider a romantic lead, very handsome and someone you might cast in a romantic comedy or drama, not someone you might cast in a kind of a tough prison break situation. And of course, you know, Kurt Russell is brilliant, Snake Plissken. You can't imagine anyone else, but he merged together different characters, including John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and so on, to create that performance. It's always surprising who, who the casting choices would be. Warren Oates was going to be cast as Brain. Warren Oates was also going to be cast as Dr. Zarkov in Flash Gordon. He was unable to take either part because he wasn't well and he died. Um, so had he taken the part of Zarkov on Flash Gordon and died, that would have been another layer of trouble and problem timing <laughs> for Dino. Um, so he kind of dodged a bullet there. And Harry Dean Stanton took the role and it is terrific as Brain. You've got um, uh, Oscar winner Ernest Borgnine as Cabby. He wanted to play the part of Hawk, which is, or Hulk, which is the prison guard that was played by Lee Van Cleef. Because he read the script, he felt that was more him. He felt more like a prison guard. Hard to imagine that now because he's perfect as Cabby. You know, and John Carpenter had him in mind when he was writing the scripts. I think the person who was most reluctant to take a part in the film, and it's unusual for actors to be reluctant, is the great British actor Donald Pleasance who played the president because he felt he couldn't necessarily master the British accent or the American accent rather, as well as an all-American actor. And even though he played Dr. Loomis as an American doctor, he played in quite low key. So the accent is quite low key. Whereas to be an American president, you need to be a character that really projects. You know, think of great presidents, you know, they have a great presence in the room, don't they? And a great American accent. So he was quite anxious by that. But he'd worked it out in his own mind. It's set in the future and that he would be the love child of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. He saw this bizarre sort of tryst be between leaders as, as him being the offspring of. And, uh, and John Carpenter loved that idea. And I would love to have seen more of Donald Pleasance. It just needs, we first meet him on the plane when the terrorists have taken over. And it's like, I would love to have seen him in president mode, either getting onto Air Force One or just giving out some orders or um, there's the famous deleted scene from Escape from New York, which is the bank robbery that puts Snake Plissken in prison. That's a great scene. And, you know, it's fine that they cut it. But I'm just thinking if it was me making the film, I would have had a pre-title sequence which involved the president getting onto Air Force One and and maybe a, a nod to some of the terrorists getting on. So it kind of sets up the, um, sets up the tension. Oh, a bit of presidential trivia. Uh, Gerald Ford's son, Stephen, is the is the blonde man, the, the FBI agent who's on board Air Force One with the president. You know, you won't need to buy the book now. I've, I've told you everything, Mike, that's in it. So um, Titan will be will be sending me to a, a prison, a walled prison in Manhattan for giving too much information away. I'll still be buying the book. Don't worry about it. So I know that one's probably been at the printer or at the, the publisher for a while. So what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a fourth book now. They're not allowed, I'm not allowed to say. So I was working on Escape from New York all through last year and people knew I was working on the book and I wasn't allowed to say And I felt terrible because it puts the onus on the person that you think they're not honest. The reason you have to sign NDAs for things like this is that somebody might try and bring out what's called a spoiler, unofficial book, where somebody could bring out kind of a casual making of something and, and it can kind of affect this. These are expensive because the publishers have to pay a big license for them. And of course, to do glossy books, it's expensive because it's um, you know, all the printing and everything else. Um, but I, I will be able to tell you probably by the end of the year. So when when they say I can say, then I'll tell you and I'll, I'll come on, Mike, if 
if you're happy to have me back again and I can exclusively reveal to you what the what book four is. Um, they're speaking to me about book five now as well. And it's like, hang on, me. I've hardly started book four yet. So um, it's it's nice to be popular. Well, I would love to have you back on. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Mike. How did you get into the screenwriting business? Pauline Kael's great title. I lost it at the movies. Oh, God, I was always a movie guy. And um, and then going to college, and I decided to be a writer. And Jesus, you know, I fell in with movie trash. I became movie trash. And I started write, writing books. And what is laughingly termed as one's mature work later on in life, I wrote, you know, I, started, I wrote a couple two or three books and um and that's what I'm doing now you know I'm writing my own stuff but I started out I was originally a published poet in college yeah my great friend was uh, Jim Dickey who wrote Deliverance and I was lucky enough to study with him and get adopted by his family and for my graduation present from college he invited me to the moonshot and I went and watched the rocket go up and the night before, there was, it was a difficult problem with press passes, at, and he was drunk with a, a Time magazine editor. And Time mag, and the editor said to Jim, I got one more pass. Who do you want me to give it to? And Jim pointed to me. He was seeing triple and pointed to me in the middle, right? And goddamn, I was, I was William S. Buckley at the moonshot. And I put it on my shirt upside down so nobody would really, you know, know I was a fake out. Except when it was all over, Buckley was standing at the gate like he had thrown the party. Like it was a party that he was saying, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. And he tilt his head upside down to look at my name tag. And I'm now shitting, right? And he says, he comes up with that big toothy grid of his and he says, I have always wanted to meet you. I was good enough to to come back with, hey, I look much better on TV. (laughs) But that was, I mean, that was a gift of Jim, you know. I mean, Jim was, there's been two or three guys like like that. And and the next one is Nicholas Rogue, who was, you know, mentor, friend, collaborator, partner in crime. It's like somebody said to Nick one time, Michael knows where all the bodies are buried. And Nick said, we're still burying them. We went on for a lot of years, a lot of projects together, and just symbiosis. That's the only word for it. The greatest professional relationship I ever had. So the moonshot was 69. Tell me about that time before you sold Enter the Dragon. I had a lot of jobs in college, but the minute I finished college, I decided I was going to be a writer, do or die. And I never had another job. I starved. And it was roller coaster, feast and famine, but somehow I pulled it off. And, and what happened was John Milius was a pal of mine. And my first job, and he introduced me to Paul Heller, who asked me to rewrite a script that they had optioned of, of John's. They couldn't afford to pay John to rewrite it, to polish it. So he put me up with the, this is, I mean, this is, this is, you know, the incestuous nature of movie trash. So he said, he said, well, Michael's cheap. Paul hired me. We became whatever we became. 
And then when Paul and Fred Weintraub had the opportunity to develop a project for Bruce Lee, Paul called me up. And that's how it happened. It was my first movie. It was my second screenplay job. No, third. First one was a rewrite, and then I wrote an original, and then I wrote, and then I wrote Into the Dragon. Very lucky boy. I've heard a lot of stories about the making of Enter the Dragon, and I was just hoping you might clarify and tell me if this stuff is true or not. I heard you and Bruce Lee didn't necessarily get along that well. Is that true? It took 45, 50 years for me to find out why that happened, and that is because Bruce wanted screenplay credit, and he wanted to get rid of the, the American writers so that he could work on the script and then claim that he wrote it. And Fred Weintraub lied to him and said, okay, I, I sent Michael home. He's, you know, I'm in Hong Kong. This is in Hong Kong. And it's Saturday morning. I'm in the Star Ferry Terminal. I'm going to Macau just as a day trip. And there's Bruce Lee checking out his, I don't know how to say it, but it was a monumental billboard of one of his Hong Kong movies. And he's standing in front of it and everybody, you know, and everybody's there's the guy up on the wall, and there's the guy, the little guy standing there looking at, at the guys, right? And he turns around and he sees me, and he's furious. And he turns around and points his finger up, because he's very short, <laughs> up at my nose, and says, son of a gun, and walked away in his, well, never mind, I, I don't want to be too disparaging, but anyway... I came back from Macau, and I have never seen Fred Weintraub. I had never seen him before, or neither did I ever see him after that moment drunk. He and Klaus, the director, were smashed on a couch in the lobby of the Hyatt Regency Hotel. And Fred said, what did you do to Bruce? And I said, I don't know. I didn't do anything. I just saw him and everything. He said, the shit has hit the fan. He went home. And I know this, Michael, because his wife called me distraught. He locked himself in his den, and he gets on the phone to Warner Brothers to complain, and he can't find anybody to complain to because it's the, it's the weekend. He's furious. Finally, he gets Leo Greenfeld, who was the head of Foreign, finally answered the phone. He didn't have anything to do except go to his office on a Saturday. And Bruce uttered the line that made me movie trash famous he said hong kong is not big enough for me and michael alwyn i never knew what why i never knew what happened until years later it, it turns out i know this from shannon from shannon's book his daughter's book that she was four years old at the time but she claims the script was so bad that her father had to rewrite it and claims he did rewrite it which he did not and again, she was four years old. I don't know who told her this. <laughs> I don't know if she even read the original Blood and Steel. But I've never spoken to her. And it's been a sore spot between us ever since. And, and you know, painful because, I, I, you know, I've tried to reach out to her, and, and, but she's not interested. But anyway, that's that's that story. I did get to see Bruce one last time. I walked into Paul Heller's house. The movie was done. It was June of 73. And Paul said, ah, there's a friend of yours here. I had celebrated the movie with a black Labrador retriever puppy and carrying this dog under my arm. And I don't know, I think he's like two months, three months old. And Paul says, a friend of yours is here. And I walk into the living room and there's Bruce. 
whom I have not seen since I was banished from Hong Kong. And he's wearing the same suit that he wears in the cemetery scene in, in Enter the Dragon. We talked and it was friendly because the movie was going to be big and Warner Brothers was going to treat him like a star. And so, you know, he, you know, he was big enough. He, he deigned to be friendly. And my dog, my puppy bit him and drew blood. But none of us knew at the time, Paul had a hint, an inkling, but none of us knew at the time that he was also there in, in LA for secret medical examinations because he had been passing out. This presaged what happened to him because he died that July, right before the movie came, came out. Yeah. But he was having trouble. And that was the last time I saw it. It ended well. But I can tell you this because you're a movie champ. You, you, I mean, you live on this shit. He had a, a day with Ted Ashley, the business guy of Warner Brothers. Callie ran, ran the creative and Ashley ran the, uh, you know, the biz. Ashley had courted him all day long, and he was going to be a movie star, man. And this is what he dreamed of. This was the tension in his personality. The guy who's so good at what he does, he's almost an angel. But what he really wants to be is a movie star. It's like me as a writer wanting to write movies when I should have been, you know, I should have been writing books sooner. He went back to his bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel and called Steve McQueen, who was his student and friend and everything. And got his voice, you know, message service. There, there wasn't voicemail then, but it, it was a message service. He said, please tell Steve that I'm going to be the next big movie star along with him. And Steve, who was the, the greatest psych-out artist of all time, he could just cut the legs out from under anybody. He sent that afternoon, within hours, a life-size poster of Steve McQueen arrived, special delivery. At the bungalow, at Bruce Lee's bungalow. And he signed it to Bruce Lee, my biggest fan. And Bruce was furious. And I know this for secondhand, but the person who told me actually knows it happened. Bruce set the, the poster up against the wall and proceeded to do what he does to Han in the movie. He kicked it to shreds. Then Steve was a pallbearer at his funeral, wearing his little denim jacket and his Levi's with a tie. Too cool for school, right? I mean, just, I mean, Steve was just, he was, oh God, he, he was a killer. I'm a huge fan of Truck Turner. Can you tell me how you got involved in that one? That's Heller and Weintraub. And they had a deal with American International Pictures. They made a lot of B movies. And Truck Turner was my second job. Uh, Heller and Weintraub had this, and they said, rewrite it into an original. And I said, okay, I'll do that. I wrote it for Robert Mitchum because I knew him a little bit. And then Mitchum, he wanted to go fishing and he turned it down. So then they offered it to Charlton Heston, right? I mean, you would go from Mitchum to Charlton Heston. Think of it. And Heston turned it down. So AIP panicked and said, okay, it's going to be black. Because it was the 70s, you know. They got Isaac to do it, and he he was wonderful. And Jonathan Kaplan has said it was the most fun he ever had in the movie business making that movie. Because, you know, and I'm glad you like it because nobody has ever asked me about it. Yeah, no, I I love it. Uh, Did you have to rewrite it once Isaac was cast? They got another guy who who shares film credit because they didn't think I I could write um, black. 
So they got Oscar Williams and and then we had a credit arbitration and they gave we share the credit. But it was great. It was a great, great fun to write. Oh God. Because it was in the um it was in the heat of Into the Dragon, you know. So I you know, I I could only I had to get up early and work because I I had a lot of lunches that year. I was the thing, whatever it was, du jour. Later on, I became the pariah du jour, but um, that's post-Flesh Gordon. Yeah, as you're doing all these lunches, how's that going for you? Like, how are you parlaying that into the next job? Just getting to know people. I remember there was a writer's strike in that time that put everything on hold. Finally... I think in June of the next year, the writer's strike was over and everybody went back to work. I had done Truck Turner by then. And then Jaws was the big picture of 75. And for two years afterwards, everybody's going to reanimate and reincarnate what is successful that year. So everybody, everybody had a horror picture with animals, you know. Warner Brothers bought a book and gave it to Heller and Weintraub about feral dogs and that was a movie called the pack and i wrote the first draft and the joke was it was going to be called pause because of what it was trying to emulate robert klaus who directed into the dragon claimed that he rewrote the script at night while he was directing during the day and the writers guild sunk that ship and he was embittered and we he was another one who wanted screen credit and then I wrote the pack, wrote the first draft. They showed it to Klaus, and Klaus said, oh, I want to do it. And, you know, this is the the director of Into the Dragon. Warner Brothers likes him. And Heller and Weintraub, are, you know, he's, you know, everybody's riding high. And Klaus says, I'll do it on one condition. I rewrite the script. And they said, you don't want to work with Michael? And he said, nope, that's my condition. And that's the way the movie business works. Cut to Flash Gordon. Well, even before Flash Gordon, you met up with uh, Nick Rogan. Was he already in talks about Flash Gordon? Because I know you talked about uh, talking to him about uh, the man who fell to Earth. Well, originally we met because I want Out of Africa is my favorite book, and he was going to do it. And we were both the hottest thing in town right then. And my agent says, what do you want? I said, oh, I've told you that I want to meet Nick Rogue. That is a bill that now is a masterpiece. And we met, and uh, I didn't get the job, but we won each other's heart. You know, we were always in touch. He offered me the, you know, he wanted me to polish uh, Don't Look Now, which I didn't do. And then all of a sudden, one, October 9th, 1997. I've never been to Europe. I've been too busy writing my ass off, and the phone rings. In my little apartment in Beverly, now I'm in Beverly Hills, at least thanks to the, you know. Uh, oh, and also there's another movie back there called Crash. I think it's called Winner Crash. That that was another Heller and Weintraub movie that, uh, yeah, that financed my move to Beverly Hills. And Susan Sarandon's in it and Joe Don Baker and, oh, God, again, it was a wonderful, wonderful fun to write because... Susan was wonderful. I wrote her speeches and she, they didn't get cut like they did in Into the Dragon, you know, because the, the villain couldn't speak English. But Susan was wonderful. And Larry Hagman, he was in it too. I met a party in the holiest Hollywood hole of all, the Malibu colony. And 
I'm standing there talking to Carol O'Connor. This is after crash. And I'm standing there talking to Carol O'Connor, and Larry Hagman walks in in a giant cowboy hat and an ankle-length mink coat. And he's at full bullshit height of his success of JR. And he walks up to us, and I said, Mr. Hagman, I'm, he says, I know who you are. Thank you. And he turns to Carol O'Connor and says, the first question, I, w- I want to say two things to you. And Carol O'Connor says, are you having fun, Larry? <laughs> and, and Hagman says to him, number one, do you need a loan? I mean, these two guys, right? Do you need a loan? And then he, he says, now, seriously, you and I are doing okay right now. And then he grabs me by my shirt and pulls me into it. And he says, but one year, this kid saved my house. Uh, and the house was in the colony, by the way, on the beach. That was fun. Hagman. Nick crazier than us. Oh, he was wonderful, though. What was that first meeting with Nick Rogue like? I was not in awe of him yet. He was a Brit. And I was an arrogant. I was. I came from the Milius school of, hey, this isn't brain surgery. But I can rewrite your script and save your life, right? It was fun while that lasted. But then, of course, the profession kicks in and, and you need to get better at what you do. It, you could start out with attitude, but you need the nuts and bolts. It's like suddenly you're a plumber. And Nick told me one time, he says, don't underestimate plumbers. Don't underestimate the being the journeyman aspect of the job. Because look at it this way. You know, I'm Nick Rogue. You're Michael Allen. Who are, the president is coming to dinner. And all these other people who are attendant upon the president. So it's a huge thing in the world, right? 30 minutes before it's supposed to start, your toilet stops up, backs up. Shit comes into your bathtub. The plumber is now the most important man in the world. And that was Nick's analogy for screenwriting. You are that man, Michael. You're going <laughs> to. And then he would say, and whatever you do, here's the great thing. I'm going to get the credit for it. <laughs> I'm the auteur. God, it was fun. It was fun. How far did the Out of Africa project get? Not with me. It went to uh, Judith Rankin, who wrote uh, a movie that they you know, was originally titled something, but then they changed the title to Who'll Stop the Rain? I don't know how well it did. She was around in the 70s. She was quite successful, I think. But she got the job of Out of Africa. And then they took it away from Nick, you know, and then the rest is Sydney Pollock history, which was, I think, a good thing because I think Sydney, that was the best you could do with that book. That was the best movie you could make with that movie. Nick would have made White Mischief of, of Out of Africa because, you know, his sensibility. We studied all the, all the, um, I'll give you an image in a minute, but we studied all the, all the comic strips of Flash Gordon. And Nick's take on it was, it's this childish dialogue, childish situations, but the artwork is erotic. And that's what I want to get. I want to get that part of it, you know. Here's the image. Nick Rogue, Michael Allen, Dino put him up at the Sunset Marquee, which is a rock and roll motel in West Hollywood. And he didn't stay there because he had he had other friends. But this is, this is where we worked. And Nick Rogue is on one twin bed. Michael Allen is on the other twin bed. We're lying there. And between in the space between the beds is a three-foot pile of comic books. 
And we are reading comic books for two weeks, throwing them back and forth across from bed to bed, talking about everything in the world except what we're supposed to be doing. And that was the way we worked for 40 years. I would go and live in his house. This is in London. I would never go anywhere just because in the conversation, something would come. We had that kind of relationship where, you know, everybody say, well, why don't you, 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 do you have friends? Do I should go to the show? I said, no, I'm here to be with Nick. And Nick appreciated that. And he was smashed every night. And it was heaven because everything ultimately was about the work. What we were talking about always went back to, hey, there, okay, there's a scene. <laughs> it always happened that way. It was a, just a wonderful way to work. And he was his integrity was such that, you know, the producer would say, uh, how's it going? You know, I mean, what are you doing? Do you have any pages? And Nick would say, of course, I don't have any pages. You think I'm going to show you pages? I'm going to show you a script. And they, you know, and they would say, well, do you need another writer? How's Michael? And he said, Michael's my writer. And because it was a way of controlling the project, which is totally, totally alien to movie logic, it's, uh, you know, because everything can be different, not necessarily better, but can it be different according to whoever has a good idea. It can be the grip on the set who says, why don't you do it this way? Movies are accumulated accidents. They're accumulated accidents that afterwards look inevitable. It's like the color of your eyes, the way, you, you know, who knows what your eyes are going to be before you're born. But once you're born, those are your eyes, man. Do you know what ended up happening with uh, Fellini, why he didn't work on the film? That was way before my time. It might have been that Fellini was, by then he was so Fellini that he was bigger than, he, he wanted to leave Dino behind. Also, you do know that George Lucas tried to buy Flash Gordon and couldn't, and that's why he, he came up with Star Wars because he couldn't afford the rights to Flash. So then Dino, being the carnivore, the, you know, the carrion bird that he is, was, he decided he could afford to buy the right, rights to Flash and that it would be his Star Wars. That's how weird, yeah, but that's, you know, that's weird movie logic, but still, it's logic. He owned the rights, he, he went to Fellini, and Fellini, Fellini didn't want to make Star Wars, probably. It's been done. And besides that, Fellini, his stuff turned really autobiographical at the end, and it was really wonderful the way the way he was able to do that, you know? Amicord. Amicord. Was a, and the music, Nina Rota, um, I stayed in a hotel in, in Venice one year long enough. I had a piano player, and I asked him one night to play the theme from Amcord. And he went into it. You know, he played the 10-minute, $100 version of it, right? Whenever I walked into the bar, he would stop whatever he was playing <laughs> and play and play Amcord. And I think it was maybe because of the tip. I <laughs> Every time he would do that, I would point to the bartender to give the piano player a drink, his drink, right? So everybody had everybody trained. So what was that process of, of putting Flash Gordon together like for you? I mean, especially how did you figure out what that plot was going to be? Because you had, like you were saying, three feet of, of comic books. How do you call that down? We didn't know at the time, but this was going to 
evolve into our working symbiosis. We just waited for an epiphany. You learn as a professional. It's not inspiration. You get a cup of coffee and you go to work every day. It's as simple as that. Because there's only one rule in an artist's life. Whatever you do every day, you get better at. So for God's sake, be careful what you do. Don't sweep the floor unless you want to get good at it. That's cost me many relationships with women. I ain't going to do that. This is what I do every day. The thing about Flash was, let me go at it like a college guy, you know, the way Schrader would would put it, okay? Flash Gordon was the most popular comic strip of the 1930s. And what else was going on in the 1930s? It was the Great Depression. Nothing was working. And suddenly we realized that Ming is a god who is a mad scientist, an evil god, because nothing's working. And the only thing that will save the world is a hero whose friend has to be another mad scientist. The minute you you see Ming as a godlike figure, it therefore follows Flash Gordon and Dale Arden are Adam and Eve being chased by a jealous god through the universe because she chose her boyfriend. She, She wants her boyfriend. She doesn't want you, Ming. And then from that followed the idea that Ming's plan was to destroy world by world. He would march through the universe and destroy the world, except for every world would have one woman. And that woman would be added to his harem to repopulate her world in his image. And once we had that, oh, my God, we were off and running. I mean, it was just it was too good to be true. And then it, it explained everything. It explained, you know, the the, the, the tree man and the, the various worlds of Mongo became uh, separate worlds of evolution, animal kingdoms and anim- and human kingdoms, right? Every, it's like all of a sudden, the dick all of a sudden, you know, he would look at me and say, this is bigger than the movie. What can we do with this? <laughs> and I say, Dick, Dick, Nick. Let's do the movie first. Let's do the movie first. Giving you a, another glimpse of the working process. Years later, we did Ivanhoe, and Nick's wife had left him, and he was bitter, and he was a single parent. And you know, as a senior, I mean, he was, he was seventy as a single parent, and we were writing Ivanhoe and everything. And then we get to the scene where they're going to condemn Rebecca, the heroine to burn at the stake and nick starts writing he says this this is my dialogue i'm going to write this and he starts writing starts dictating to himself and he's writing and this is why we're going to burn you you know and this is what you've done these are your sins this is your fault this is blah 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 suddenly i had to say nick nick that's enough she's not your wife and he looked at me and he says okay you polish it So you get a glimpse of the process there. I was a little surprised by the level of nudity in what I read. Oh, yeah. That was Nick. Dino was so funny. Dino was the problem because he didn't get it. He kept saying, "Uh, where are the jokes? That's why he ultimately, you know, swung back to Lorenzo Semple, who's camp kitsch champion of the world. And Dino would say, hey, we don't laugh. We might as well suicide ourselves. That's an exact line. 
My argument with Mike Hodges and Dino's Flash Gordon is that it's winking over the heads of the kids who take it seriously. You know, you take Star Wars seriously. There's a morality at work there. And kids buy it. That's what they want. Dino chickened out and kitched it up, you know, thinking he would he would have an older audience. And what happened, he had a lot of trouble financing. He had to give a lot of stuff up. He lost Dune. He had to give up Dune to, to keep going on Flash Gordon. It was the biggest money-losing movie of 1981, even though it's a cult classic kitsch camp. But again, it's winking over the heads of the kids who want to believe it. You know, there was an original, an original line. I don't even think it, it. I think it was in the first draft, and it's not even in the draft I sent you. But Flash and Dale don't even meet until they're on the rocket ship escaping from Earth being destroyed and she's doesn't know it's gone she's distraught and it's nighttime and flash says he's trying to cheer her up and he says you think you've got trouble i gotta save the world in my pajamas <laughs> but that was the idea you know, that was the that was the spirit of it even though the lie did did survive yeah i was surprised in that draft that you sent me that they're a couple already and i kind of appreciated that we didn't have to go through the courtship as well as the adventure one of the later drafts, it starts with a meteor shower just destroying the Eiffel Tower, and, uh, you know, and, and 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 whatever's in London, whatever's in New York, everything. The world is going. That was the one that Milius liked. Milius says, wow, you've destroyed the world in five pages. What happens now? And I say, well, the rest is movie magic. How long did you two work on the project together? Nick lasted one year, three drafts, from October his phone call, that phone call on October 9th, for just for you, is um, October 9th, 1977. Nick calls and he's he's cool because he's 60s, kind of 60s London. You know, he's still, you know, I directed Mick Jagger. And, and he says, um, I'm sitting here, and, but he can't help pretentious. And he says, I'm sitting here with Dino in Claridge's. And I say, yeah. And he says, now, I know you're quick, so don't say anything right away. But how do you feel about writing Flash Gordon for me and Dino? I went silent. I just, I was just shitting in my tights, Mike. I think, yeah. I didn't say anything. Count to ten. And Nick says, and I hear what sounds like a lion grunting in the back. Because Dino was a very little man with a very deep voice. He sounded... Oh, it was just amazing to hear him talk. And I hear him grunting. And Nick says, are you still there? And I says, can I talk now? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then Nick says, and this is how it happened. Nick says, Dina will be back in um, L.A. tomorrow. He wants to meet with you 9 o'clock on Saturday morning. And from the in the background, I hear the lion say, I look his face. And that was Dino's mantra. Dino's, and and then within, I met Dino at nine o'clock on Saturday, and he slapped me across the face and said, "Never forget." Slapped me again. And said, "I said what? Flash and Gordon save the world. Now go write a me movie." I said to Nick, "I'm you know you. Where am I going to do this?" He says, "Well, you come to London for as long as it takes." That was uh, and that changed my life. Yeah. 
then it got really funny because Dino didn't later on he he adopted me and he said Michael this is later on after Nick burned off and and Dino says you stay and you come and hang around my office you know and you, maybe you learn some Italian he didn't know that I that I understood Italian for two years and he because he he that's how he he talks in front of people you know about them and that's you know it's very rude but he, it's what he used to do but i understood if i had enough italian to understand one day his assistant came in and said we you know we're sitting there in silence because he and nick aren't getting along and his assistant comes in and says how's it going in italian and, and dino says in italian ah my goddamn director thinks he's a genius and the boy is silent so yeah it was going south but the great thing was the great. This is the great movie lore story. You know, his English was not so good. He says my English is not so pretty as it looks. He had this translator named Doris, and she came from Italy with him. And he had this whole entourage of people, and one of whom was this this translator. And she she had to translate everything he read into Italian. We would hand in our pages, our script, and she would translate it, and then we would. You know, we always had an earlier deadline for her, and then we would meet with Dino to discuss it. And we would come in with our 120-page screenplay, and Dino would have this huge pile of paper on his desk, and he'd, he'd be licking his fingers and turning pages and saying, now, on page 163, and we would look at each other, Nick and I said, 163, what, what's 160? Is it the Italian expanded it? into a hundred more pages and it was just bizarre so one day i'm having um, i'm sitting in this woman's office no she came to my house and i had my puppy and she came to my house we were discussing the script and everything and this is the woman your your life depends on her right she's translating your work you know to the producer who's paying you and going to credit leone and raising millions of dollars for this project and my dog ran through the room, and this translator said to me, Oh, what a beautiful cat you have. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. That's, oh, Lord. Wow. And you just, your heart, you know, it's like, whoa. The great thing about Dino, listen, I got to talk, talk about Dino because I really loved him. You work in the movie business, and it brings out the the best work and the worst characteristics of anybody. It's like Frank Lloyd Wright said, the um, North American continent is tilted and everything loose slides to L.A. And the movie business is the exaggeration of, the, of that idea. And you meet all kinds of, everybody's on the make, everybody wants to reinvent themselves, everybody's, every, you know, everybody's, everybody only has one clean shirt. <laughs> you know what I mean? You think you're swimming with sharks, but you're really just being nibbled to death by goldfish. It's trivial. It doesn't really matter. It's just that the stakes are so high. But then you meet Dino, and Dino is the real deal. Dino is the devil. And it's such a pleasure to meet the devil because this guy, I call him a peasant emperor because he he had this genius. He knew what you wanted, and he would offer it to you. Whatever he wanted, he knew what you wanted. He said to me one time, who's, who's, I, I need the script, Michael. And I said, well, I can't, you know, we're two weeks away. He says, no, I need it Sunday. 
I said, no, I can't do it, Dino. He said, I'll give you a bonus. I said, no, I can't do it, Dino, please. This is like the 13th draft, so, you know, we speak each other's language now. And he says, okay, okay. But let me ask you about casting. Who do you see for Dale? And I mentioned, you know, the most beautiful woman of that week. (laughs) And he says, hmm, she'd be good. She's a good idea. That's a good idea. Really good casting. Okay, here's the deal. Michael, you give me that script by Sunday, and I'll have you sitting in first class on the way to London the next morning sitting next to her for a screen test. And you can talk or you can chatter up about the screen test the whole way. You'll be together for 12 hours. And I said, Dino, Dino, I can't. <laughs> no, I can't. That was the way his mind worked. And I have a son who is his grandson. Yeah, talk about, you know, screenwriter's revenge. Now, how did that work? Yeah, it worked out for a while. And then, you know, I was in the family. We didn't see each other for 13 years, and I walked into his house. Uh, we had Flash Gordon in it in lawyer's tears, you know, because he, he pulled some stuff on me, and I, and I walked off. But 13 years later, I walked into his house. It's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and his daughter is so pregnant she can't see her, her feet. And I, shake, I said, Dino, it's wonderful to see you. And steam came out of his ears as he said, Michael. Yeah, <laughs> because, he, you know, we sued each other for over Flash Gordon and he lost. Hey, it was the highlight of my screenwriting career. It was the most fun I ever had because of Nick. Did you stick on or stick around once Nick was off the project? He peeled off in September of 78. He lasted a, a year. And I did, this is the, the insanity of working for, for, for Dino. I did eight more drafts until I left in February of 79. So we were to get, you know, and then we were, I mean, Dean and I were joined at the hip all those months until he, uh, I couldn't allow what he did. And that was about Lorenzo Simple and the ultimate project. And also it it was about Mike Hodges because Mike Hodges uh, was, he was going to be Nick's second unit director. And when Nick peeled off, Dino didn't know what to do because, he, you know, by then it was such a British project because of the tax situation. I mean, he needed a British director. And it was Hodges. Hodges Hodges was in way over his head. Not that kind of director. Not that kind of personality either. I mean, he couldn't, no way he could deal with Dino. And he just uh, decided he was a traffic cop and directed traffic and did everything there was no problem. He gave Dino no problem. But, oh, you'll like this because you're a movie guy? Ridley Scott told me. We had a meeting about he was going to do maybe do Dune because Dino had lost it. Dino had tried to get Ridley to do it when he owned it. But then when he he gave it to Universal for some more money for Flash. And when Ridley heard that, he thought, well, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll insult the little fucker. And come up, you know, maybe be available to Universal, but not to Dino. And he said, I said, why not? He says, well, because Dino was after me and I was on the set of Flash Gordon and Dino visited the set and Hodges told him, because Ridley's a big deal. Mike Hodges is not a big deal, but Mike told Ridley, Dino's coming. Oh, my God. Don't tell him I'm here. 
And Ridley was proud of the of the story that he told me. He says, I hid behind a palm tree and Dino never saw me. Was Nick Rogue, was he upset that you stayed on or was he cool with that? He was cool, but it was insincere. We had a, a final meeting with Dino at his house in Beverly Hills. Dino and Nick agreed to part company in front of Dino says, whatever happens, I'll, I'll avoid all uh, litigation. I'll pay whatever you want. Michael, do you want to stay on the project? And I said, let me, let me think. You know, and I walked Nico out. I mean, uh, yeah, I walked Nick, Nick and I left and we're, this is out in front of the Doheny estate that he had bought, Dino had bought. And Nick said, stay on it. You do it. You know, pit, you know, protect our stuff. But he didn't mean it. And it was, it was a test. And he didn't, we didn't speak about it, about anything. Almost, uh, oh shit, 10 years. And then we got back together and worked every year for another 10 years. Somehow it, we, you know, we patched it up, but he was always, whenever there would be trouble, you know, it, it would always come up. You know, this is not Flash Gordon, Michael, right? And I said, I know nothing is Flash Gordon. Come on, I'm I'm sitting here in front of you. I'm sitting with you. It was a real sore spot, real sore. And that's why the Studio Canal project of asking me to come over and, and talk about the movie that never was, was such a treasure to me because I got to, you know, I got to talk about Nick's Flash Gordon and honor that, you know. Because it would have been so different. It broke his heart. It broke both our hearts. And the movie itself, I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> it's 180 degrees away from what you guys were doing. I can imagine you had to have been very upset. What's so surreal about it is there are touches in it that I see. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, I don't know, it's like you have a kid that you don't know, but all of a sudden he does something that reminds you of his mother. After a while, everything becomes parental. So it sounds like you got blackballed after this whole thing went down. Was that because you were suing Dino? No, I walked off. And uh, my agent, I had the really big time guy at the time, and I left. And I had a three-picture deal with Dino, and it was a whole shitload of money. I said to, to Dino, Dino, it's been two years. I'm, you know, 17 months on this project, and I haven't done anything else, and I'm, I'm with you. And this is a big deal now. I mean, we got – you move from Pinewood to Twickenham. It's going to happen. My college is – they got a start date and everything. But he said, I want you to – I want you to work with Lorenzo Simple on the script. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm in the middle of my latest draft. Let me finish that draft. And between you and me, we'll discuss it. And then maybe I'll I'll work with Lorenzo. But allow me to finish what I'm doing now. He said, sure, sure, sure. And I said, don't let me down. He said, no, no, no. You are Flash Gordon. I said, yeah, well. Uh, there are only two guys on this project now. There's 400 people working on it, on it now. You got everybody. And there's only two guys for whom it's not just a job. And he looked at me and says, yeah, you and me. And I said, thank you. Okay. Bye. And then 
I have my spies, and my spy calls me in the middle of the night and says, Lorenzo Semple is delivering pages. I escaped to the Ritz Hotel in Paris overnight. Dino has people outside my apartment in Beverly Hills waiting for me to arrive. I'm in the bathtub at the Ritz watching my life flash before my eyes, right? This goddamn hotel room. I was going to stay at the Ritz, so why not? I'm, you know, committing suicide, right? So I might as well. So I take to the bathtub, and my kid keeps coming in and saying, this is a great hotel. I said, how can you tell? He says, I just had a Coke for $9. I go deeper into the water, right? He comes back an hour later. He says, this is fantastic. I can't thank you enough for taking it. I said, why? He says, I had a cheeseburger. cost $45. I'm, I'm dying now. I'm dying, right? So, never mind. Long story short, I come home by way of Venice because I know I'm, you know, I, I got trouble ahead, and this is the last time I'll I'll be there. So I go to Venice, take my family to Venice, and we go back. My agent calls and says, "Where have you been?" And I says, "Well, well, you know, I I, I went elsewhere after." He says, "Well, never mind where you've been. I'm no longer your agent." Now we're full circle, pariah du jour. And then Dino and I, you know, Dino and I sued each other. And it took a year and and he caved. So I don't think Nick liked the fact that I won <laughs> legally. He went off and you know what he did? He went off to Vienna and made uh, bad timing. That was his recovery from Flesh Court. Well, and also, but it dissolved his first marriage and he ran, you know, he ran off with Teresa. And that was his new life. So what are you doing now? You said you're writing books? I wrote a book that did really well, a nonfiction book, translated into 19 languages. It's a weird story. It's a beautiful story. It's about. It's a true story about um, uh, the Viceroy of Egypt in the 19th century as a gift to the King of France, sent him a giraffe. And the book is this story of this giraffe's arrival in France. It's in 19 languages. So the New York Times sent a, a reporter out to interview me, and her job, she said, the editor said, I want to know how he got from Bruce Lee to the giraffe in 750 words. Yeah, and I said, well, you know what? That's about five words a year. And then I wrote a novel that Disney bought for their Christmas movie, one of the worst movies ever made, called, um, they called it I'll Be Home for Christmas. My novel's called The Christmas Kid. After that, you know, I I bounced around. I, I moved back to Spain and I moved to Lima. I was in South America for commuting between there and California now and writing stories. I wrote two books during COVID. The other thing is I told you about End of the Dragon, the stage production. That's next year in Las Vegas. I'm a suit on that one. You live in the, at the mercy of other people's notes and now I'm, they want my note. I guess there's some kind of progress there. I, I don't I don't know. Mr. Allen, this has been so great talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you can use some of it. I, I'm, 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 you know, I, know, I rattle on, but God bless you for reminding me of everything that I love. You know, I love this shit.
right. We are back and we're talking about Flash Gordon. And Chris, I'm not sure. Did you get a chance to see Life After Flash? Yeah, we, um, we had recorded uh, an episode, um, with Flash and Life After Flash. This was one big Flash Gordon for, uh, outside the cinema. When did that come out? Was it like two years ago? 2017. I mean, the last two years don't really count, do they? No, no, but I didn't think it was that long ago. I mean, because I was really glad to see Peter Wingard show up, and I know he's been gone for a little while. Okay, so he died in 2018, so he must, this must have been right before he passed. It's an interesting documentary, though, I have to say. I couldn't really tell if it was trying to be either, like, the Flash Gordon fan film, or kind of like a low-key promotional film for Sam Jones' later career pro- activities. I, but I don't want to sound un kind, but I don't just think Sam Jones is, I don't think he's that interesting of a character. <laughs> I think the movie is interesting. It feels very much like a a retrospective of Flash Gordon, and then when you get to those Sam Jones parts, there are some interesting things that are going on there, but the stuff with his family, I mean, you know, I'm a, very much an avowed atheist, so him talking about like his faith and his uh, kids who are pretty prudish about Ted, they couldn't handle Ted. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, yeah. okay, the one son is just like, oh, that was, the, oh, that was terrible. I'm like, okay, dude, relax, you know. But then they're like, oh yeah, and dad leaves us a letter every morning, and there's a, a Bible verse. I'm like, oh, okay, now things are adding up. I gotcha. Hey, if it works for him, right? If it works for him, that's great. I, I guess, and he's not hurting anybody. Though that's my parameters. I, I don't know. I, I didn't love the Ted films either, and I mean, I'm very pleased if the Ted films existing has turned a few people onto the Flash Gordon, but uh, I I remember chuckling a bit at the first one and not chuckling at all at the second one, and it's like, alright, I guess there are only so many jokes you can get out of Raunchy Teddy Bear. <laughs> oh boy. The thing I remember about the second one is just that it's basically a replay of the first one, like when the, he does that same white trash girl monologue with different names this time, and then when he does, and then when Sam Jones comes back. I'm just like, oh, we're doing this again, huh? Okay. I guess if you want to go to that, we can. But that's all I remember from the second one. I mostly remember the first. All three of us are well aware that movies are a combination of art and commerce. Very few films feel like more commerce than the rushed out part two. Very few films feel like just sausage product for the market than like something like Ted 2. As in, did you have any ideas for a sequel? No. Just, well, the first one was an unexpected hit. Churn something out so people can eat it. Okay. You think that was the kind of deal where he's like, well, I want to make this really stupid Western. I'll do, I'll write Ted 2 for you if you uh, let me make my my movie and you get Charlize Theron in it. Yeah, I don't need, yeah, I think it could just be as simple as, yeah, I'll I'll do a Ted 2 as part of a two-picture deal. That million ways to die in the West. I was not happy with that one either. It it has mo it has its moments. What I like about Ted is um most of the stuff was filmed um you know within a half hour of my house. Especially the miniature golf with the orange dinosaur in I think the first movie they're playing miniature golf. I can't remember between the two now. That orange dinosaur is definitely a landmark, so much so that when they sold the land, tore it out, gonna put condos and a Cane's donuts and stuff in there. There was a, a petition that was like all of New England was signing it to keep the dinosaur because it's that much of a landmark. 
because the, the highway splits from Route 1 to 99 at that point. It's like, nope, you're on Route 1. Keep going Route 1 after the dinosaur. And it's nice because that golf course isn't there anymore. That's all I'm saying is uh, too many of my stores are disappearing. God damn it. It's a weird movie because, yeah, it's like part of it is here's how much we love Flash and just the the interviews that they got. I mean, of course, a lot of it is like, hey, we're at Comic-Con. We're going to interview all these people. Okay, that's cool. And, but, you know, you got Michael Rooker and Sean Gunn and just, the, yeah, very good faces that they've got uh, Robert Rodriguez. And then you have interviews with the actual people that were in the film and some people that – we haven't heard from. I mean, I love that uh, the filmmaker, she managed to get Topol. She had made a short with Topol before. So I think he trusted her, uh, Lisa Downs. And so having Topol talk about the movie was fantastic. He turned me down for an interview. Melody Anderson as well. Yeah, Melody Anderson. I I don't know if this episode is going to have an interview with Melody Anderson and, and Sam Jones. They both agreed to – be interviewed but sam is kind of strange he just is like you can ask me on monday on a monday on a monday and i will tell you if we can talk the next day at 10 a.m pacific time and you have to do this and i was like oh okay so i emailed him again and i was like this is me uh doing the the, the homer backing into the bushes <laughs> <Right. game." laughs> and then melody got back to me and she's like yeah sure that sounds great do you want it to be just me or do you want it to be sam as well and i was like yeah whatever's easier and then i never got a response ever again so what you gonna do but they've got their lives. They do their thing. So I thought she was great in that role. She was. She was so good. And that it was such an early role for both of these actors just to be able to carry the film like that. I thought was great that they are just on screen so much. Well, if you don't like this movie and if you think it's like over the top or too corny or too silly, she's the, the one you'll point to and be like, see, see how silly this is. But if you like this movie, she's kind of the barometer. Her cheerleading bit is a little bit silly, but you know what? So is the whole football sequence. <laughs> that can be the moment where you're just like, okay, I'm done with this movie. Like Chris's dad. Well, he didn't even make it there. He just got the hot hail. Yeah, no, we hit the football game and that was that was definitely... We all know how that belligerent, nasty feeling when you are the person who really hates a movie. And then if you hated Flash Gordon, I know it's hard to uh, swallow, but just play along. If you hated this movie... And then the football sequence shows up. You're going to just look. You're gonna, I'm out. I'm out. I was also really glad that they ended up having an interview with Brian May and hearing more about the music. Because, God, the soundtrack. Oh, man. Everybody knows the key song, Flash, and, you know, Savior of the Universe and all that stuff and a few other cues. The entire score is really good. It is great. And I love – especially towards the end during the third act when you just get the dum 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 going through it's like a heartbeat you're waiting for it to hit and then it'll like go into voltan's theme and then it'll come back and keep that dum 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 going and it's just like oh you know the tension is just building and they they keep adding more tension that yeah they add the alarms on mongo and kala starts getting really really antsy and yeah also credit to a composer named howard blake 
who uh, who also did some traditional orchestral cues. It was Queen didn't do the entire score. Right. They had like 45 minutes of music or less than that. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think all of the music, whoever, you know, whatever cue is attributed to which, either Blake or Queen, it's all great. It's all great. Oh, and the sound effects. I love the sound effects. I'm trying to remember. I think we were talking a little bit about um, Edgar Wright. The use of the, the ring noise that he used that in Scott Pilgrim at one point, that, that little sound effect. And I love all the sound effects, the sound of the hot hail coming down, all that stuff. So good. There are very few sci-fi movies where you could hear moments of the sound design, sound effects particularly. And you know, like I know the sound effects from act one of Alien. Like, you know, I know those doors opening and they get the, get the, you know, all that, you know, that sounds like a, a futuristic modem. And Flash Gordon is another one. If you just heard the Foley effects or the sound design, you'd be like, yep, Flash Gordon. I know it instantly. And of course, most of the Star Wars movies, Ben Burt, genius. But, you know, they sat down and they said, look, we're going to be compared to Star Wars no matter what. So make it sound different. Yeah. And I, I think it was more like we're going to be compared to Star Wars and we really hope that's the case. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, you know, like I said earlier, I like that they did, like, Star Wars has some dark moments, but for the most part, it's a family-friendly, you know, affair. And I, I like that the intent for Flash Gordon was, let's bump it up just a little bit, make it a little bit more violent, a little bit funny, and a little bit sexy. Not so much that you're going to get an R, but, you know, if Star Wars was meant to be for seven- and eight-year-olds, maybe Flash Gordon's for, like, 13- and 14-year-olds. Definitely did something to my 10, 11-year-old mind, that's for sure. I love the matte paintings when when Aura and Flash Gordon are in their cool spacesuits and flying away after she brings him back to life. Just the way the space looks is beautiful. I love the lava lamp special effects that, that occur a few times. And a lot of the matte paintings that they had were done by Alex Ross, who ended up being a like incredibly famous comic book artist. And then I was looking up, he even did some Flash Gordon comics himself. He did one called, I think, Zeitgeist, and where it's Ming and Hitler. And there's kind of comparisons, which is funny because of that whole thing of Clytus, like, oh, now he had promise. You know, I think it came out as a trade not that long ago, maybe 2017, um, speaking of long ago. Uh, and I'm glad he's in the documentary. I'm glad Deep Roy's in the documentary. I'm glad uh, Richard O'Brien's in the documentary. People that you don't really see talk about Flash very often are in here and giving some great stories. I absolutely appreciate that. And then, yeah, like the, the fan perspective, the collectors, like there's a um, – commentary that's out there where it's sam and melody and then oh what a big kev is one of the hosts it's like a podcast and there's uh bill something or other and bill is in life after flash because he's a huge collector he's the guy who's got that full-size pig guard and uh the colitis mask where he's like oh peter wingard actually wore this one it's like okay that's cool Usually collectors in documentaries like that, I'm like, stay the hell away from me. But it was nice to see the props and just how carefully crafted those were. Yeah, there's two levels of collectors. There's what I do, and then there's people with money and and what they can do. Yeah, and this guy was like, well, if I don't buy action figures for you know X number of months, I could actually buy a prop from flash gordon back when you could afford stuff yeah, like and that he has what he has the sword that that flash had at the end right yeah. yeah yeah and he actually on that commentary 
I listened to it. I, apparently there's a video version of it too. And Sam is like throwing around the sword at the end. I'm just like, Oh, that's pretty awesome, man. Would love to find some deleted scenes. If would, would love it. If some, some of that footage was, I obviously would never be able to be incorporated into the movie, but I would love to see if somebody unearthed 25 minutes of deleted scenes from this movie. Well, that's where that John Walsh book really comes in handy, too. He talks a lot about that stuff, and he knows these collectors and has managed to dig up a lot of those production photos and things where it's like, oh, this was supposed to be in here, and this was supposed to be in there. So, yeah, his book is fucking fantastic as well. I What's the title again? Flash Gordon, the official story of the film. Yeah, it's one of these oversized, very tall books. Not super thick, but it's jam-packed with information. Oh, have you guys ever seen the Turkish version of Flash Gordon? No. Okay, yeah, there's a, a Turkish version of Flash Gordon. I'll include a video. We've talked a little bit about Neon Harbor before. I think when we talked about Psycho, because there's a Turkish Psycho that's out there. There's also a Turkish uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Or No, I, I take that back. I think it's Egyptian. But yeah, there's a Turkish Flash Gordon from, I want to say 68, uh, Flash Gordon in space, I think is how it translates. I'm not going to try the Turkish pronunciation. You've seen Turkish Star Wars. You've seen Turkish. This is more Turkish Star Trek. Like you remember how poorly like the, the shirts and everything fit. So it's more along those lines and you can get the entire movie. I don't think it's subtitled though, but you can get the entire thing on archive.org and then I'll post the neon Harbor comparison piece. It's like five minutes and it's hilarious. All right, we were all about eight in 1980, but do you think that the kids who were like eight or 10 years older than us at the time used to have those heated nerd arguments of who was cooler, Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers, because they were both coming on to either movie or TV around the same time? I want to say the kids in the 1930s had those arguments. I don't know about the kids in the 1980s, so. No, but I could see, I could see like sci-fi or movie nerds in like 1979 being like, well, shit, somebody made a Flash Gordon movie and a Buck Rogers television series slash movie. And, and, you know, I could see like if Twitter existed back then, you'd have the debates like you do now of, oh my God, Flash Gordon is so corny. Buck Rogers is a hard science. <laughs> And they had that Hawkman on Buck Rogers, too. Oh, I loved Hawk. Yeah, me too. Loved Hawk. Yeah. The only thing I really remember about Buck Rogers, apart from Hawk and then, you know, Twiggy. Oh, uh, the awesome. Oh, the awesome intro theme. There's a lot of interesting reading on the Buck Rogers TV series, which they then they released the pilot as a theatrical release, I think. Um, there's a lot there if you want to dig into that that uh, rabbit hole. But uh, just for fun, if you got a minute and a half to spare, go on YouTube and look up the old Buck Rogers 1980s original theme song. It's kick ass. <laughs> Yeah, I remember talking about that when I was in fourth grade. So I guess we did have discussions like that, but I was more talking about like how cool it was when the aliens and V ate the rat. Oh yeah. That blew that blew minds. V was big for about a year there. Oh yeah. Before the birth of the star child and it all just turned to shit. Oh, I don't even, yeah, I don't even remember, but I remember for at least, at least a few months there, it was, it was the uh, middle school or, or elementary school version of the water cooler talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You had your, your little, uh, milk that you would have to like try to peel open or like use a pencil. Did I see to- last night? Yeah. Man, that <laughs> lizard, that skin looks so fake. Man, when he ate that rat. Oh. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Here is what critics are saying about Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. 
Vincent Canby of the New York Times wrote, it is brilliant, a tour de force of extraordinary images, music, words, and feelings. A clockwork orange is so beautiful to look at and to hear that it dazzles the senses and the mind. Judith Christ has called it the number one film of the year. She said, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange stands as a stunningly original work, even as it does full justice to Anthony Burgess's novel. It is in his total vision that Kubrick's mastery of every phase of his art is displayed in bravura style. And now the New York film critics have given A Clockwork Orange their award as best film of the year and have named Stanley Kubrick best director of the year. Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange from Warner Brothers is rated X, under 17, not admitted. That's right. We'll be back next week with a little bit of light entertainment to kick off 2022 as we discuss A Clockwork Orange. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Chris and Scott. So, Scott, how are things going over at the Overhated Podcast? Very well, thanks. I, You know, as your listeners might know, I... I once co-created a podcast called 80s All Over, and then I did another one called uh, Science Versus Fiction, and I wanted to try something by myself, but with a floating series of guest hosts. That's what I wanted to do, and obviously you're both invited to uh, join me on a future episode, definitely, but the idea of Overhated was I love a lot of quote-unquote bad movie shows and podcasts. I love the dissection and even the ridicule of bad movies. As long as it doesn't get too nasty or personal, I think that's a lot of fun. But I thought, there's some context missing here. We can all point and laugh at some of the silly or stupid things even about Howard the Duck, but how did that get made at the time? And not just mockery, but like, how was it received? And uh, is it really as bad as everyone says? The show is meant, obviously based on the name, Overhated, is a discussion of was the film kind of um, overhated at the time? I, I think a lot of times press and reviews can leak into popular opinion. Uh, I think a lot of times a half-decent movie can get a, a bad shake. And we all know that sometimes bad movies blow up and people love them. Well, the opposite is sometimes true. So on Overhated, we cover stuff like, you know, Ishtar and Catwoman. Uh, but we also cover stuff that I think came and went and then went on to become beloved, like... Josie and the Pussycats or Event Horizon. That's overhated. If you want to check it out, you can go to Scott E. Movie Nerd on Twitter, and then I will point you to my Patreon. And Chris, what's going on in your world? Uh, well, we're still doing Outside the Cinema, which is, for anybody that doesn't know, it's, uh, we've been going since 2008. But the movies are inside. <laughs> yes, but you gotta go outside to talk about them. Oh, okay. I oh, didn't I get come up with the title, and that's the best I can do with it. That's, huh? that's, I came in in the, in, in, at, in episode 56 and I've been there through 700 other episodes. I don't understand the name. I didn't come up with it. That's all Bill. I literally just crossed 50 episodes on Overhated. <laughs> nice. That is an accomplishment. So many people will hit like 25 and be like, yeah, that was fun. What, what next? Oh no. If I have my way, I, I would love to keep going with this. I really love the concept of like underloved slash overhated slash give it a second look. That's just how I feel about movies, how I often feel about people. Uh, that, you know, somebody, something you might not have liked might be worth a second look, uh, or at least a second consideration, uh, or, or at very least just giving some context to, to movies that are hated. Uh, you know, I, I look at me, how I got a second plug in there. Look at me. So yeah. Outside the cinema. Oh, right. Yeah. You started, Sorry. uh, episode 50 and you're still the new guy. Yeah, because there's only one other guy, so I'll always be the new guy. We Basically, every week we review two cult movies, or are they cult movies, are they not? Um, 
most of the time they are. But we're actually, this month, we're reviewing stuff uh, from this year that neither of us have had time to watch. So recently it's been um, a twofer. We did Prisoners of the Ghost Land and Pig. And then the other one we covered last week, or the week before, was uh, Rent-A-Pal with um, Wesley Crusher there. What's his name? Will Wheaton. Yes. Yes. And that was a surprisingly tense film about dementia and 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 the people you love and acceptance and it's billed as a horror movie but really it's like you know when you when you break down the babadook and it's all about loss whether you like it or not it's about dealing with loss and that's kind of what this is and that's my thing now with movies is like psychological stuff so i'm trying to bring more of that into uh what we do but Italian movies, the sex comedy. We tried reviewing Italian sex comedies. I'm sorry, I'm just rambling. And we did find that you can't really review an Italian sex comedy for 20 minutes because it's either it's funny or it's not. No, it's like literally like reviewing like an 80s teen sex comedy from America. I mean, how long can you talk about Hot Dog the movie or Up the oh, Creek? On the other really? hand, though, <laughs> Hamburger the Motion Picture is actually really funny. I did like that one. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
made it to the end of this episode of The Projection Booth. And as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience. Here at The Projection Booth Podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire, Bang. <laughs>